VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, July the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's do it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you heard Brian Medora mention that, yes, Canada's back in action at the FIFA Women's World Cup. Underwhelming in the lead-up, uninspired against Nigeria. Now they've got 22, uh, 22 in the ranking world rankings for Ireland coming up this morning in about a half hour or so, I guess. If they don't win, hard to envision them getting out of the group stage. But anyway, so leading up to this, there's a squabble between, between our national women's soccer team and Canada soccer about how much they get paid and how much money from the World Cup, for instance, would be distributed directly to the players. Some of the adjustments have been made. They've struck some form of deal. But talking about soccer and the world of money, and Dave Williams mentioned this to me yesterday, and it's really extraordinary. People are absolutely right in saying there's an obscene amount of money in professional sports. But like everything else, I guess, people will get paid what their owners think they're worth. Same as whatever my house is worth is based on whatever you're willing to pay for it. But there's a superstar 24-year-old Frenchman named Kylian Mbappe. If you've watched the most recent World Cup, you saw a real coming out party. He was already a well-established international superstar, but now one of the premier ballers in the world. So talk about money. So the Saudi Arabians, of course, for prestige as opposed to profit, they're offering a lot of the big superstars in a variety of sports huge money to come play in their leagues. And that includes the Saudi Arabian Pro Soccer League. Okay. So to get a player from another team, he plays his ball in Paris, France at Paris Saint-Germain with an absolutely loaded roster. So the Saudi club, I think it's called Al-Halil, they offer $332 million to Paris Saint-Germain to get the rights to Mbappe. Then they offered Mbappe a one-year salary, one, one soccer season salary, $776 million. Like, it doesn't even make sense. One player... One season, $776 million? Records all around. Right, The current record for a transfer fee was when Paris Saint-Germain brought Neymar, Brazilian star Neymar, to town for $245 million. But really, while the world is really facing a crunch on a variety of levels, there's one soccer player being offered $776 million? Extraordinary. I'm easing into it today. It's uh, last day to speak with me. I'm off for a little while after the, the program today, so let's go. On this date, 1984, while playing for the Montreal Expos, Pete Rose tied Ty Cobb with his 3502nd single. He finished with 3215 in the world of singles. I love the debate as to whether or not Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame. After years of denying that he bet on his own team, he admitted that he bet on the Reds when he was the manager. You know, we can talk about all the hits that he had and what have you, but he made it to the All-Star game 17 times. In an unequal five positions. He was an all-star at five different positions. Second base, left field, right field, third base, and first base. Anyway, Pete Rose. And at the World Aquatic Championships in Fukuoka, Japan, a couple of medals in the high dive. First ever for Canadian high divers. So Molly Carlson and Jessica McCauley, they had a silver and uh, bronze, respectively. It's our first two medals there. It's off the 20-meter board, so congratulations. Bunch of finals coming up in the pool where we've got some superstars trying to add to their medal haul from World Championships. Championships pass, so we'll keep an eye on that. All right, and so you don't need me to tell you. It's hot. 
and the heat warnings continue for many parts of the province, including the Avalon and into Central. But the heat and the extended amount, a period of, of really extraordinarily warm temperatures, has caused DFO to close some 77 salmon rivers. We've seen warm water in the rivers in years past, you know, 20 degrees, 22, 23. But the issue here is just for how many days in a row it's been so hot, and consequently, they're shutting down the rivers. There are some reports of dead salmon washing up. The, some of the anglers, the experienced anglers that have chimed in on these news stories, they say they haven't seen it themselves, but it's being reported whether it be at Lower Falls and Dunville or what have you. And it stands to reason with this type of temperature in the water that it would kill the salmon. So for the anglers who really love nothing better than getting a line wet, 77 rivers are closed. There are some rivers that have morning fishing that extends only till 10 a.m. But anyway, if you're an angler and you want to tell us what you're seeing on the river, we'll be happy to take your call here today. All right, this is a good story by Rob Antle over at the SEAB, based on access to information request. So, all right, it's talking about the state or the status of the province's government's light vehicle fleet. So for context, there's 819 vehicles in the fleet, and then we'll get to the rentals. So the government says that, you know, there's been some complications because of the pandemic. Okay. We do know that there was a real problem getting vehicles during the pandemic, semiconductor issues and other parts and what have you for the construction. But that really does become a go-to excuse for almost everything, doesn't it? Well, the pandemic got me. The pandemic uh, interrupted this. The pandemic derailed that. But inside an internal audit, it was identified that there was no plan to refurbish or to replace some of the aging vehicles. So find and blame it on the pandemic, but if there isn't even a plan, and inside the plan there could be continued references to, well, the pandemic this, the pandemic that. So the impact here is that there's some potential for work and programs to be eliminated or reduced because they don't have vehicles for our employees, whether it be with geoscience work, some of the work and programs being done inside the Department of Fisheries, Food and Agriculture, and other departments that have chimed in and talking about the vehicle concerns. But here's where it gets really quite extraordinary again, is rentals. So inside the fleet of 819, there's another additional 93 rentals being used, predominantly for seasonal work. Okay. So there's a $5 million budget, $5 million for five years straight, so $25 million to add to the fleet. 55 vehicles have been purchased this year with plans to buy more. Okay. But the rental issue, they either can't or won't tell us what the price tag is for these rentals. They should be able to come up with that number. Sounds fairly fundamental to me. But add to it an already uh, really tight rental car market. So we've heard tourists say that they're not coming because they can't get a rental or the rentals are so expensive. We've heard people maybe have been in a collision here with their vehicle in the garage, can't get a rental as per their insurance. So here we have all of these issues in a very tight rental market. And the government has gobbled up somewhere in the neighborhood of 93 or 100 rental vehicles to some untold cost. You know, when there's not plans for something as fundamental as managing the fleet, you've got to wonder, you know, who's steering that ship? Anyway, so you want to take it on. It's good work by Rob Antle on that front, though. Okay. And in the world of roads, every now and then we get a call from somewhere in a fairly remote, sparsely populated part of the province about the decrepit nature of the roads. And I think that speaks to virtually the entire province. And there will be a busy roadwork season, fine. The concept being brought forward, and your opinion is welcomed here, is that for some of these sparsely populated remote parts of the province, that they're purposefully being left off the priority list for the aforementioned reasons. 
So I can entirely understand that. Some people might say that's the pragmatic approach to road work, while others will say, hey, I'm a taxpayer, I live here, so don't you owe me road work and reasonable roads that are passable and safe? But anyway, that's the thought being rolled around after one particular call yesterday. And let's go at that. All right. Welcome news yesterday from the province, the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne, and members of the leadership at Munns Medical School. So we actually spoke with the chair of the Board of Regents yesterday, Glenn Barnes, about a variety of things. And I think the last question I asked him is, does the Board of Regents have a formal position on the thought of opening or offering a law school, a law school program here at Mon? It's been bandied about and floated about. I think many people in the legal profession think really not necessary. So they're going to expand Mons Medical School. Good. So there's 80 seats currently. 65 of those seats are for people from this province who have either graduated high school or have lived here for three years prior to applying to be at Mons Med School. So expanding it from 80 to 90 and consequently 65 seats for the locals to 75 seats. Great. So we know that if you're from here and graduate from that school, you're more likely to stay than someone who's come from elsewhere in the country or from abroad. Apparently, they've signed uh, three-year contracts with some 42 residents talking about recruitment, expanding seats not only in the med school, but for nurse practitioners, registered nurses up and down the line. The one part of the story where, you know, the minister says we got to get it right. And of course we got to get it right. You always got to get stuff right. But they've put out an RFP to try to bring in a company to analyze structural and faculty requirements so that they can uh, expand the school's annual cohort for years to come, as per the news story. The question will always be, is do we not have, between leadership at the Mons Med School, current students, senior bureaucrats, the minister responsible, and others to figure it out? Am I missing something that overcomplicates something like expanding one's med school, whether it be for infrastructure and tutelage and residency position? Like, I don't know all the moving parts, but you would think that folks who are intimately involved in day-to-day operations of the current med school would be able to figure that out. But it is good news. It is good news. There is questions out there about why not every single seat is prioritized for people from the province. I can't speak to the rationale necessarily, but international students and opportunities, for instance, like New Brunswick used to sponsor five of the seats. They gave up that sponsorship. We took it over in the recent past, expanding our seat count from 60 to 65, and now in the years to come, it'll be 75. So I think that's probably really smart thing to do. I'm sure many people will agree, as long as they, quote unquote, get it right. Okay, let's keep going. And I, th- I find this to be a healthcare issue as opposed to a criminal justice issue. But the RNC are warning of the presence of fentanyl on the streets. Just the smallest drop of fentanyl can absolutely be fatal. I don't know what has spurred this on, whether it be a most uh, recent overdose is, but it's absolutely very, very real. In the past, we've talked about the presence of fentanyl and carfentanil and whether or not when drug dealers purposefully put that into drugs, specifically cocaine, whether or not that mandates a different, more severe penalty for when you're caught. The trick here, and when we talk about these things, it's not talking about enabling people. It's talking about people being able to save themselves or others around them to save their life. So they're saying you should get a naloxone kit, and of course you should. And to not use alone, there's lots of places to get a naloxone kit. So again, sometimes when we talk about these things and harm reduction policies and opportunities to actually save someone's life or to get a clean needle, people will always accuse me of saying, well, you're just pushing drug use on people. Of course not. The reality 
in life is that some people will be addicted to some of these drugs. And if they can be kept alive with application of naloxone, maybe just maybe that makes all the sense in the world for societal issues and inside the world of healthcare. I mean, because people want to talk about drugs as simply criminal justice when in fact it's absolutely part of the health conversation. So if you or someone you know is using these types of drugs, and now that we know for sure there's fentanyl on the street and wrapped up in some of these products, including cocaine, we've got to deal with that. And of course, the drug-related matters really spurring on crime. There's a new story today about multiple people involved in an April homicide in and around Sebastian Court in the city. We've looked at notorious pockets and neighborhoods here and other parts of the province where crime is rampant, people are afraid, asking big questions, and you can bring forward your concerns, questions, or comments on that front this morning as well. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Let's get going. All right, in the news, Jim Din, leader of the NDP, the member for St. John's Centre, accusing the provincial government basically of evicting vulnerable newcomers, including Ukrainians. People wonder about the length of time newcomers will be staying in hotels on the government's bill. There was now an implication that if it 45 days is the max, unless there's exceptions granted by the province. So Mr. Din says, you know, they're basically evicting people with nowhere to go. And even if you're working these days, regardless if you were born in Sinclair's or a newcomer to the province, if you have a job that doesn't pay a certain amount of money, you can't even afford a one-bedroom apartment. So it's a big conversation. Jerry Byrne, the minister responsible for immigration, he says it's a real slap in the face at the, for the Association of New Canadians. Well, hold on. The Association for New Canadians does really good work, but they can't magically create housing spaces. So when the province set up shop in Poland to help navigate immigration for Ukrainians, we were all aware, as was the government, of the housing crunch. It hasn't approved. It's only gotten worse. So nobody wanted to come to a country where their hopes of accommodations were at a hotel forever. So you know, when the, the government has created this particular situation. And it's not just in this province, it's right across the country. So again, you could be pro-immigration and see the economic upside, the economic necessity, the societal upside. But inside the world of housing, we really do have to pump the brakes a little bit for every reason. For people who are currently living in the province or born in the province, who are new to the province or representing immigration files, both federally and provincially. So yeah. This is not a slap in the face of the ANC. This is the reality of housing on the ground. And we'll bring it forward one more time. We spoke with Kerry Murray at the ANC the other day about the home share program. It might indeed be something that works for some people and some households in the province. A Ukrainian family moves in. You're matched up. It comes with a $1,000 a month stipend for up to five months. And there's a lot of big reasons why this could work for all hands and all involved. So I'm not seeing this as a slap to the NC. It's just speaking about the realities. It's always easy to say, well, that's a finger point of blame that's unnecessary. It's overly harsh or overly critical. But the facts are the facts are the facts. People are struggling to find housing, affordable and otherwise. So that's a big story if you want to take it on. Let's go. All right, federal cabinet shuffle today. You know what I find interesting about this stuff is... By and large, you know, if you point fingers at individual ministers and their sidesteps or mistakes, for instance, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, gun control legislation, the whole Paul Bernardo issue, and on and on it goes. So there's going to be new faces in cabinet, but 
by and large, I think voters look more to who leads the party versus who uh, holds all the various ministerial portfolios when they make huge errors or bungle certain issues that, of course, grabs headlines. But at least four new faces coming because there's four current members of the cabinet that are not going to run again. Uh, Omar Al-Agbar, the transport minister, the pro- public services and procurement minister, that's Helena Jacek, mental health and addictions uh, minister, Carolyn Bennett, not running again. Fisheries minister, Joyce Murray, not running again either. And then you look at whether or not Mona Forche, who's the president of the Treasury Board, Justice Minister David Lametti, looks like he's on the hot seat. Absolutely, Marco Mendocino. So that's coming up this morning. I don't know how much we're going to see with it and what it means for this province. But these are always clear opportunities for parties and prime ministers to, quote unquote, change the channel, change the tune, refocus Canadians. But Canadians, we're a pretty smart crowd, right? People will see it as whether it's good, bad or indifferent, but it's coming today. Let's wrap up the preamble on a positive note. Why don't we? Son of a critch. I don't know if you watch it. I think it's a good show. I think it's really sweet, and it is really funny at times, too. So it's one thing to be successful in Canada, and it absolutely has been a runaway hit in this country, but now they crack the American market. Nothing like 350 million pairs of eyeballs possibly going to set sight on a show that was created in this province, shot in this province, predominantly features VOCM, which I think is awesome. You all know the storyline, right? So now with their debut in the United States, some of the reviews are really quite something. So this one says, this uh, funny and generally sweet from a TV uh, magazine called The Decider. One of the best shows of the year, says TV Fanatic. Very much a recommendation from the Los Angeles Times. And this one from the Wall Street Journal is really great. The Wonder Years, if it was written by Gene Shepard with additional dialogue by Judy Bloom and Hunter S. Thompson. That is a great review. So whether or not you like the show, those reviewers really liked it. On that front, yesterday, Rome in the halls here, spent a lot of time up with the crowd on the, the old K-Rock, is Malcolm McDowell, one of the stars, of course, of Son of a Critch. He's a fascinating guy, and everyone seemed to be just chuffed to spend some time with him yesterday. I saw him walking in the halls, but I was on air, so I didn't get a chance to meet the man. But he was in A Clockwork Orange, of course, a Stanley Kubrick film generally regarded one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, Eyes Wide Shut, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and on and on it goes. Kubrick would have been 95 today. And of course, Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell, just saw the relationship, thought I'd throw it out there. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show to wrap up my stint for the week. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three this morning to begin with uh, speaking with the province of seniors advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for uh, inviting me today. Happy to have you on the program. Before we get into some other issues, you know, the heat is an issue for many, certainly for seniors, and the ability to cool off. Uh, it's well documented in the medical, medical world that if you have chronic illness, for instance, and el- the elderly have a harder time cooling. So what do we understand about cooling opportunities in some congregate living facilities and also talking to municipalities to offer up cooling stations for their uh, their community's seniors because if it's unmanageable for many it certainly is for many seniors as well no that's for sure and uh, you know in in this province we don't have this kind of weather uh, for a very long period but when we have it it's very serious because we're not used to it um, and so you know, we know that a lot of our uh, conjugate living arrangements were built uh, some time ago before uh, you know all the standards around uh, 
air conditioning, et cetera, came in. Um, we know that the uh, requirements for personal care homes, long-term care homes, don't necessarily say you have to have air conditioning, um, but they do say, you know, you need to ensure all the appropriate uh, ways to keep people safe and cool. And so, you know, fans and uh, supply of water and, you know, those kind of things that will keep people safe. And, of course, that's that's the responsibility of these facilities. Um, and it is, of course, an interest of mine and concern as it relates to the review that's uh, coming around the long-term care and personal care home uh, homes in this province. I think we have standards that are very outdated and we need to be considering what they need to look like go forward and the change in climate is one of those things and so maybe we need to be considering on a go forward basis how we address um, you know air conditioning and those kind of things in facilities. What about you know the concept of municipalities taking some responsibility to offer cooling centers I kind of get it because I know people that have written me emails and or I bump into them shopping or what have you is their go to is to either go to the grocery store walking up and down the aisles to try to stay cool or going to the mall those types of things we talk about it in the winters trying to stay warm Absolutely. but the same th- application here in this really extraordinary stretch of very very warm temperatures so what should municipalities responsibility be do you think well, I think the municipalities are, I mean, I've met with many of them as I've traveled the province, and I think they are very attuned to the fact that the majority of their constituents in most of the uh, municipalities in this province are seniors. And so as a consequence, they are doing, um, you know, turning their minds to, okay, well, how do we support seniors in our communities? And I have seen some who have been working on, uh, you know, cooling stations and putting in um, opportunities for, you know, bringing seniors to to, uh, you know, centers, those kind of things. Now, do we need more? Of course we need more, and uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, if if we look at some of the approaches that uh, age-friendly communities, dementia-friendly communities that we know the province is, is uh, thankfully moving forward with, those are some of the things that we will see advance uh, in, in the near to not hopefully not too far distant future. Let me also say, before I get myself in trouble here, is I know full well there are tons of seniors who are self-sufficient and resilient and they don't need anybody to do anything for them. They're fine on their own. So every time we talk about this, like whether it be using the Internet or these types of issues, people get mad that I say, my God, you're painting us all to be decrepit or all fragile. No, I don't think that at all. I know many seniors in my realm, they got it going on. They got it figured out. They can take care of themselves. We're just talking about those who maybe have the need for some additional support. You you mentioned the uh, ongoing review of long-term care and personal care homes. Where are we? So my office, as you know, uh, had a recommendation back in 2019 for this review. And, Patty, I celebrated my first year anniversary in June in this position. And one of the first things I did when I came into the job was say, okay, look, we need to find out where all those 2019 recommendations are. And so I did release a report in short order in the fall of uh, last year to say, here's where we are with the recommendations. And that one was still outstanding. And so I did call for a government to move on it, and they did. And so they have called. They've put together their expert panel, which I asked for an expert external panel who are independent of government. Now, the chair is, so I feel uh, that's helpful. Uh, And then I asked the minister, look, we need a community uh, group who will provide relevance and context and knowledge, et cetera, 
to that panel. And so uh, Minister Osborne agreed to that. And so the first meeting of the community stakeholder group, and my office is a member, but so is a number of other community organizations, uh, many of whom I recommended to the minister, uh, is uh, are on that panel. And so the first meeting is middle of August. I have had a, consul- a conversation with the chair of the committee, Dr. Keith, and, um, you know, to express my concern about what this is all about and what we want to see out of this. And basically that, you know, at the end of this review, we need a blueprint that we can implement to make positive change to the long-term care and personal care home systems in the province. Not an, not, we, don't, we don't need an outcome of what we already know, uh, what the problems are. We need a, here's what we need to do to fix it. Yeah, because planning for the future, whether it be forecasting numbers of dementia or, and or long-term care, whatever the case may be, but on the other side of that coin will be, I, I think you and I spoke about this, there was some while back, you and some of your counterparts across the country were in Ottawa, talk about the creation of an aging-in-place tax credit, and more and more seniors who just want to stay in their own home, close by their family, their friends, and familiar surroundings, as opposed to being institutionalized. So that's where the real future lies, I think. Any progress on that front that you can tell us about? So, um, you know, you're exactly right. We did have a meeting with the federal minister, Cara, on that matter. And um, we, are, we are in a province that we have the highest home ownership in the country. And we have, uh, you know, a, a very significant population of aging persons. Quarter of the province is 65 plus, 47 percent is uh, 55 plus. So we know that we have to do everything we can to help people be able to age well in their communities, in their homes. And um, my understanding is I have reached out to the federal department to say, well, you know, what's the status? And the review is still ongoing. Uh, It's it's, uh, around that uh, tax credit. It's one of the things that I'm quite interested in, besides that aging at home benefit, is how, uh, how the review that's ongoing around the GIS, because I f- feel the two are somewhat connected. So there is a review, a federal review happening around the rates for GIS, and it's um, you know it's important for us to realize that the inflation rate in our province and Atlantic provinces are so much worse than the rest of the country. And so how is GIS being uh, determined? What's the what's the formula that's figuring, you know, what the GIS rates should be? And should our formula be better for, you know, look at our inflation rates uh, in comparison to the rest of the country and look at what our GIS should be? And that's, that's an important piece for me. Now, I can't make recommendations to the federal government. I don't have that authority. But I can make recommendations to the provincial government, which would include... Uh, uh, you know, some lobbying around what the GIS review should look like and the impact for our province uh, to help with the significant Im- impacts to people around the cost of living. Yeah, I mean, the most recent spat of inflation, it's cooled off pretty well in this province. I mean, nationally, we're still fighting the good fight, and hopefully the Bank of Canada sees it's been a little bit easier than they thought to deal with inflation. With the guaranteed income supplement, the GIS, you know, everything like that needs to be straight up indexed with the consumer price index, right? It, it just does, uh, and adjusted based on CPI. But my thoughts, and I agree with you uh, that there's a distinct overlap there, but a tax credit specifically for aging in place can maybe allow for it as opposed to money coming in the door that you can do whatever you want with it. And, you know, so would be necessarily monies that can be direct relationship between caregivers, home care supports, those types of things required to age in place. And on that front, 
when we talk about caregivers, I think there's a survey I saw go by on your uh, social media not too long ago about a national caregiving survey. What's happening there and what kind of questions are we being asked so that we understand what how caregivers are doing, what their needs are, and where the future lies? Yes, so there is a, a, a researcher from Western Canada who's doing research in the area of um, what uh, home care should be in terms of the rates and, uh, you know, is the amount of money go directly to the person to, to purchase the service, those kind of things. And so we did, uh, you know, uh, help her out in terms of, you know, feed into that because, you know, the research will be important to us as well because it is an area. Um, when I did the work uh, in the fall on consultations in this province, uh, it was an area we heard a lot from families about. And so it is an area we're focused on as an office. So any research that we can, you know, access is, is always helpful in terms of our analysis when we come forward with recommendations. What I'll say to you is I am very hopeful that the uh, caregiver um, potential tax credit is separate from the work that we should be doing as a province given that we it's my understanding some of the health care transfer money was identified to help improve the home care situation in our province, increase the rates of pay, professionalize the service, which we really, really need to do, um, and then access. So I'm hoping the two are very separate. Fair enough. And, you know, we even if we make those changes philosophically, we still can't allow for the way social workers evaluate your needs to be influenced by those changes because there's always going to be a restriction and a certain amount of money available. But getting it right is going to be so critically important. The forecasted numbers are right in front of us. Well, Patty, we're hearing that, you know, some families are saying, my, my mom qualified for home support, but we could afford to pay it, yeah, our, that's right. our, our piece. I mean, we've got families who are receiving GIS, so, you know, seniors who are receiving GIS, the lowest income seniors in the province, and still have to pay a deductible for their home support. It just doesn't make sense. And what it's potentially doing, and we are hearing this as an office, um, is that it's driving people to say, well, I'm just going to have to go leave my home. Uh, I can't afford it. And so that's not what, you know, uh, supporting people to age in place is all about, and it's certainly not what I would have thought home first uh, philosophy that Department of Health uh, talks about is all about. So, like, these are the areas that, as an office, we're investigating with the idea, based on the research we did this fall and what we heard from seniors, with the idea that, you know, you'll see more recommendations come from our office in the fall around some of these matters. I guess even if we just do cost comparison, staying at home versus in a long-term care facility or any congregate living, I think there's arguments to be made for the better. Uh, always good to have you on, Susan. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to reach out to your constituents, who are my constituents, many of them, so many are seniors. Stay in touch. Thanks, Susan. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Susan uh, Walsh of the Province of Seniors Advocate. Uh, let's get to the break on time. I heard some fella on with Jerry Lynn Mackey out of the corner of my ear when I was getting ready this morning. He's a visitor to the province, came specifically to ride his ATV on the trails. He was given rave reviews of the province's trailway network. Now, there's always work to be done. There's always potential for some washouts and ongoing repairs. We're going to talk about the trailways. When we come back, and curiously, Jesse Fleming back for Team Canada over at the World Cup. Christine Sinclair, captain, starts on the bench. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Rick Noseworthy from the Newfoundland Trailways Association. Rick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind this morning. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. Did you happen to hear that fellow who called or did a piece with Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning just ranting and raving about how great the network was here? Yeah, it's good to hear, Patty. It's, you know, a lot of times when we talk to you guys, it's always bad news. And it's so good to, to see the good news because... Uh, you know, the ATV community and the trail itself, a lot of times it's uh, it's always uh, in a bit of a, a negative light sometimes, you know, because of the abuse of ATVs and, and some of the stuff. So it's so good to see uh, to see the good news. 100%. So do we have numbers to get an understanding of how many people actually hop on the ferry, come across with their ATV specifically to ride our trail network? We don't have a number. Uh, it's We've been asking for years. Apparently, it's hard to track down the number because it's the way that CN tracks what comes on the ferry. Now, apparently, that's been uh, changed. Like one time, I believe they were grouped in with motorcycles and other, so we didn't know. But we, we've got some numbers. Uh, you know, we, we've heard, like, you know, for example, there's a parking lot in Nova Scotia where a guy will rent you a spot to park your car and you just drive your ATV on the machine. And, you know, we're hearing. Sometimes, you know, there's a thousand cars uh, out there. So not at one time, but, um, you know, the numbers vary. Of course, you know, we get the tourists, which is great. But, um, you know, the tourists within our own province, the people that are leaving, you know, um, CVS and, and going to Gander or going across the island and coming back, you know, that's numbers that, you know, hit the trailway a lot of times that we don't, uh, you know, I guess we don't always see. You know, it, of course, it's not. It's not what they call it, I guess, fresh money, but um, to a guy that got a small gas station in, in Badger and the money's coming from CVS, he don't really care. He's still getting his money. So, uh, you know, we are moving some money around. Okay. Any spots of note that we need to talk about, whether it be improvements that are ongoing or uh, repairs being made? Oh, yes, Patty, always. Uh, the big thing right now, it's a shutdown from Heatherton uh, down into Port of Basque. Uh, once again because of a rain issue that is three major issues in that area in the last two years and uh, we don't know what to do like it's a government it's a provincial park uh, you know one of the things is being batted around and i and i agree that maybe we got to look at a at a reroute you know it's not our call like i said it's a provincial park but uh, three washouts three major incidents in, in two years um, the trail is built along the ocean you know, may, maybe it's time to rethink what we're doing there. Because um, the, in Fiona, uh, there was rocks that did like three boulders to go in that are that big that all you can do is say put three of them on a flatbed on a tractor trailer. They were pushed by the waves 250, 300 feet uh, out of their area. So, you know, we can't continue to fix out there at that rate. Um, the other big challenge that we have is alders and we got to find a way to control that uh, they're a nuisance uh, they grow like you know at an incredible rate and they're very expensive to remove um properly yeah so no we, doubt oh i mean with the reroute i guess if you're seeing washout year after year it just makes sense to try to avoid that unnecessary cost is a reroute you know even if it is the province's responsibility is there a reroute map or plan in place that's been presented no. Okay. No, it's just something that we're looking at, uh, 
to, you know, with the new regulations and stuff. And once again, Patty, this is out in Porter Basque and Trailway Council. You know, it is a provincial park, so you know, we, we will hopefully have an opinion, but it's something that we got to look at. And right now, you know, there's a lot of things on the go. Like I said, with alders, there's 300 kilometers of alders. And to remove them, it's $500,000. And at the way that we do it now, uh, alders will grow back in five years, and we estimate that it'll be $100,000 a year maintenance to keep the track uh, or the trailway alder free. So we need to find other ways, and we're working with partners there from, uh, you know, lawning the soil to change the, the vegetation to planting uh, different trees that allow grow alders. Uh, you know, there's, there's spray programs. We, we, we are trying to find a way because we cannot sustain $100,000 a year in cleaning up alders. No question. Rick, good to have you on the show. Anything else quickly before we say goodbye? No, thanks for reaching out. and hope everybody has a safe uh, rest of the summer. And, of course, uh, you know, I can't come on now, you know, without saying I'll be safe, wear your helmet, your seatbelt, and be responsible. So thanks for your time, Patty. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Rick. Stay in touch. Okay, buddy. All right, bye-bye. Rick Nosworthy, the president of Newfoundland Trailways. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so much, Patty, for having me on this morning. Really appreciate it. No problem. Did you hear what I had to say about the Jim Din-related issue and Ukrainians being evicted? Unfortunately, I did not, but I am aware of some of the comments from Minister uh, Mr. Dean and um, just wanted to be able to provide some factual context and to provide some reassurance as well that uh, that which is being suggested is not necessarily the um, the full story or the full context. In fact, it's, it's a good program and it's working well. Okay, so if I'm a Ukrainian family and I open up the mailbox, I get a letter that says I have two weeks to find alternative housing, then what? So we'll work with them. So this is not the first time that a notice has gone out that there is an expectation by the government and the people in Newfoundland and Labrador that the Ukrainian guests and our neighbours and our and our and our friends will integrate into the community at large. So as you recall, back in April, 110 days ago, we did provide a notice saying that those um, those that are living in temporary accommodations, we really really want to work with you to get you out of those temporary accommodations because it's never healthy to be in an extended stay uh, in such circumstances. That would be something I think everyone would agree with. And so we began a process then uh, to get uh, to get people into the community. There are people, Patty, and this is one of the things that by having this very, very public discussion, which Mr. Din wants, we are, you know, we're airing some things now that need to be aired, which is that there are Ukrainians that have been living in temporary accommodations that have been working. There's like, for example, there's a welder, uh, someone who's been working as a welder uh, in our province and who's been in temporary accommodations for a while. And these are the folks, these are the individuals that we're now saying, uh, you know what, we've had great success of getting Ukrainians into community-based market uh, housing. Um, we'd like you to follow suit. And so these are the clients that we're really targeting at this point in time uh, to get those people out. Um, there are 3,000 Ukrainians in Newfoundland and Labrador. 2,200 have already found community-based uh, market housing. None are in social housing. They're all in housing. So this is successful, but right now we're at a point where in order to keep the initiative going and bring in even more Ukrainians, 
we'd really like those that are capable of getting into the community to do so as quickly as possible and we are going to provide them with significant supports to be able to do so okay and you call mr uh, din's comments as a slap in the face of the association for new canadians but the fact of the matter is the anc nor you nor mr din nor me or anybody else we can't magically create housing vacancy rates in this part of the province are extremely low in and around three percent the price tag for getting into a home especially if you have some sort of entry-level job as a newcomer or as a permanent resident is at a touch for many so how is it a slap in the face of the anc when they can't create housing uh, because you're operating on the assumption that housing is not available, that these people will be, uh, you know, unavoidably put out on a street or something, which is not the case. See, this is where it's very, very important to be respectful to the organization that has been doing this for 40 years. It is the ANC, Patty that has been helping refugees. And one of the things that the ANC identified to us is that when you come from a traumatic experience, when you come from a, 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 a place where there's great uncertainty, uh, uncertainty and upheaval, there is a tendency occasionally that when you find a safe haven to stay in that safe haven, to don't take the risk. So there is a sort of a, a behavioral component to this that the ANC recognizes that they want to get people out, and sometimes there's a reluctance to do so. Now, we're, we're airing things right now, which, you know, quite frankly, is, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, to withdraw or to reduce public confidence in what the Ukrainians are doing in our province, but when we have these kinds of discussions, we have to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the social dynamic, the psychological dynamic, the things that go on. So why I say this was very unfair to the ANC was because they know that sometimes a gentle nudge is what is required. And when you cause suspect to that, uh, what exactly is the motive or what's the intention? Is there is there some force afoot to just simply throw them out? That is not the case. If there is someone who's vulnerable, um, we'll work with them. If they continue to have some language skills, language defici deficiencies, we are going to continue to work with them. But, Patty, there are individuals that um, that can get out into the, into the housing market. And, again, 2,200 have already gotten into housing, 600 of which did so without any assistance from anybody. They actually they, they didn't work with the ANC or the government they were able to do so. So the notion that there is no housing available, that's not a accurate notion. Is it tight? Yes, it is. But Ukrainians are among the, you know, one group that is, can find housing in their, and landlords and others are really welcoming them to have them in their places. I, I can't speak for Mr. Dane, uh, and I have nothing but respect for the folks, uh, the folks at the ANC. There's not no housing, but there's limited housing. So when we set up shop in Poland, and you just mentioned bringing more and more newcomers, Ukrainians or otherwise, are we underestimating the housing crunch? Are we underestimating the daycare issue? Are we underestimating healthcare access? And should there be a reevaluation of what are realistic numbers? Because at this moment in time, 2,200 is very encouraging out of 3,000. 3, uh, 600 on their own accord, absolutely brilliant stuff. But the other issues here, it doesn't make someone anti-immigration say there's a housing crunch, a health care issue, a daycare issue. Have we underestimated those issues as we apply immigration targets? So first off, um, 
I really appreciate the fact that you know the amount of respect and 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 confidence that people have in the Association for New Canadians. I think that's really really important to maintain. Second off, this is not happening in isolation, as if we're walking past and saying, "No, we don't have to deal with that problem." We just had a, a very successful call for proposals for innovative housing for Ukrainian newcomers. Um, in Canada, the great nation of Canada, which we're very proud of, Canada imposes a 60-day limit on temporary housing for refugees. 60 days. Once 60 days is up, you're out. Newfoundland and Labrador uh, receives from Canada, from the government of Canada, about 600 to 800 refugees each and every year. It's one of the reasons why I want to work with the government of Canada uh, on how good housing solutions for the federal government-assisted refugees, the refugees that come from Syria, Eritrea, from Afghanistan. You know, Canada puts a limit of 60 days on temporary housing. We are now in a situation where we're saying after 110 days since we gave the first notice, we would like you to actively engage in looking for housing. Um, and that's really what this is all about. So this is not a whistle past the graveyard kind of moment where we say um, housing is not an issue. We're always very, very aware that housing is an issue. Housing is an issue for a lot of people in our province. But Ukrainians are finding it. They're finding it, and it's not just the Northeast Avalon, Patty. Ukrainians, half of a significant number of the Ukrainian population of our province actually lives in central, in, on the Avalon Peninsula, outside of the Northeast Avalon, central, western, and, and some in Labrador. So we're, I would say to you, <laughs> We're working on the full gambit of the wraparound services for Ukrainians. But I'll throw this out. What would be the alternative to this? To say, because the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, brought in approximately 700 Ukrainians through an airlift, 3,000 are here. So what that means is, is that uh, 2,300 arrived with, you know, on their own, would the alternative be, and I say this with my, you know, as a rhetorical question, as a rhetorical uh, statement, would the alternative be, you know what we should have done? We should have told them stay where they're to until we have everything perfect for their arrival. That's something I categorically reject. Because when there's a moment, never forget, this is a humanitarian crisis. There are f over 40 million Ukrainians in turmoil because of Putin's illegal war with Ukraine. They're looking for, many of whom are looking for a place to go. Newfoundland and Labrador did, did what Newfoundland and Labrador does so often and so well. We put out a, a, a welcoming hand and an empathetic uh, uh, embrace to people who are in jeopardy, whether they f are from Syria, Afghanistan, Eritrea, or Ukraine, and we're doing it well. So the alternative would be stop, you're not welcome here, that will never, those words will never come from my It lips. needn't be a zero-sum game, though. It doesn't mean zero uh, to 3,000 and nowhere in between. I don't think anybody reasonably is offering that as a comment or a thought about immigration. It's, but as you already admitted, nobody thought that this was the best place for them to be for an extended stay in a hotel. So, I mean, that's even from you, from me, from Jim, from others, and from yeah. the newcomers. So it's not about none or 3,000. It's about getting it right, setting targets that are manageable upon arrival for everybody's best interest, and most importantly, for the newcomer. I'm late for the break, Minister Byrne, but I appreciate the time. Sure. 
Listen, I appreciate it too. And just to, just on that closing, is that that's why the ANC, it's not a desirable outcome, but it's a manageable outcome. I would have preferred, I think a lot of people would have preferred for uh, to give it the latitude for the ANC to manage this system, to manage this process, to manage this result the way they know how to best manage it and not to second guess them. This is their initiative with, with partnership with us. I think they're doing an excellent job. There are some Ukrainians that need a little bit of a nudge. That's what the ANC has decided to do. They did start this in April. Right. Let's see this through. God bless them. No one's suggesting the ANC ANC isn't doing their level best. That's not anything I've ever heard anybody say because they have got they've taken on a monumental task here. Certainly, in the last well, decade. Well, you know what? I would disagree because what the what the well, I can only speak for myself, Minister Dean is that they were said they were given they were given the the effect of an eviction notice. That's not what the ANC did, Patty. Appreciate the time, Minister Byrne. All the best to you. I love you. You too. Take care. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Angie wants to tell us about someone who was working with the Community Food Sharing Network. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to the top of the board. Line number one. Good morning, Angie. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks. How about you? Oh, we're okay. I just want to pass along to the public um, the passing of my dad, Edgar King. He was a longtime um, employee of the Community Food Sharing sharing association he was the warehouse manager and i know a lot of the the public knows him all the food banks he did all the annual christmas parades lighting ceremonies at barring park uh the turkey drives back in the day so i just wanted to get it on the air so that people were aware if they would like to attend i have met your father and I'm really sorry to hear this. The folks at the Community Food Sharing Association, from top to bottom, I mean, sometimes they do it very quietly. But, I mean, the serving, what is it, 56 or 57 food banks across the province, it's irreplaceable, the energy and the effort they put in. So I'm really sorry to hear about your dad. Yes, they're a small but mighty team, as yeah. we used to say. Yeah. So I just want to pass that along. He is resting our kernels, and um, the week is from 2 to 9 today, and the service at the chapel as well is 2 p.m. tomorrow. How old was your dad? 72. And how long was he with the uh, Community Food Sharing Association? I'm not sure exactly, but over 20 years. My condolences to you and your family, Angie. Thanks for telling us about it, uh, even though it's quite sad. Yes, I thought the public would appreciate knowing. I'm sure they do. And, he, you know, he would have touched many lives in this province. So once again, our condolences and uh, wish you and your family well. Thank you, Patty. Take care, Angie. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Yeah, I would have met Edgar King. That's, boy, oh, boy. Let's go to line number four. Betty, you're on the air. Hi, Betty. Oh, hello. Hello. Hi, good morning. Yeah, uh, nice to speak with you. My pleasure. I just arrived into St. John's this morning at the airport from Alberta, and uh, one of my suitcases have gone missing, and I was just wondering if you could put something out to the public. I have a feeling that it was just taken from the airport in sheer accident, not just a mistake, and uh, I was just wondering if anybody may have realized by now that they're holding a suitcase that belongs to someone else. It happens, and hopefully it's exactly yeah. that. Someone innocently took the wrong bag because there were so many similar suitcases on that, well, on the Perfect. belt. Uh, so, Betty, are you staying in and around town, or where are you? 
Uh, right now, I'm in St. John's. Okay. So yeah. but we don't even need to describe the suitcase because obviously if someone opens it up, <laughs> they'll know very quickly <laughs> that it's not their stuff. It's precisely. But it is a red medium-sized suitcase with black with a black zipper in it. And it's a direct do you want them to? Do you want to give out a number? Do you simply want us to uh, have them call us so we can try to help reconnect the bag with yourself? Actually, I have a phone number that I that uh, I'd appreciate if they could call. Sure, let's go. What is it? Uh, well, it'll be long distance. That's the only thing. It's one seven eight zero eight seven one nine three three three. Yeah, most people have long distance coverage on their cell phone bill or cell phone packages, Correct. so that should be okay. Seven eight zero eight seven one ninety three thirty three. What's the other Alberta code? Four oh two or something? Is it? Uh, yeah, we have several up there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I also have a local number, my sister's number that they could call either. Sure. It's seven oh nine. Yep. Six eight nine. Mm-hmm. One seven nine four. What brings you to the province, Betty? I came home for a family wedding. Family wedding, okay, that's exciting. And you say you're here from Alberta, and my subject line says you're here from Lloyd Minster. So Lloyd Minster, Alberta, not Lloyd Minster, Saskatchewan. That's correct. <laughs> How close yeah. do you live to that particular straddling border? I am about a three minute walk. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, I've lived there for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a nice community. I enjoyed my uh, my time and my life in Alberta. Met my wife in Alberta. Both my children were born in Alberta. Came to this province when they were really quite young. Jackie was only a baby. But anyway, oh. uh, Betty, someone took Betty's suitcase probably. So when you open it up, and especially if you're a man and you open it up and you see that it's obviously not your stuff, give us a call. You can call Betty's line at 780-871-9333. Or you can call her sister's home at 70. 70- 09-689-1794. Good luck. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Betty. Enjoy your holiday. Okay. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. All right, Betty's from Lloydminster, Alberta, not Saskatchewan. Let's take a break. Lots of time for you when we return from the newscast. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this hour on line number five. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, caller. Line number five. Hello. Hello. Yes, uh, nice talking to you, Benny. My pleasure. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, and I've got a, I've got a woman in uh, long-term care in the Conception Bay North area, and uh, down there, Patty, they've got no air condition. It's hot enough down there, to, I don't know what to say, but it's really, really hot. And uh, I ever brought down a fan. They had that one out in the hallway. I suppose trying to cool stuff down. But now I'm down today and take that one home. And I got another portable one now to put up. But I mean, the swell run down there. I can only imagine. And a fan is helpful, but a fan's really just blowing around hot air. That's all. Yep. And what can you do? I mean, it. I asked him, I said, what's wrong with the air conditioner? 
They said that uh, they're waiting for a pilot to come in. Now, Patty, that's well over a year waiting for a pilot to come in. I mean, that don't make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense to me either. I mean, we put a lot of blame on supply chains and all that type of stuff, but parts for air conditioning, which is not entirely new in North America, you think coming up with a part would be easier said than uh, waiting for a full year. Yeah, it was over a year, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's real. I just said, I guess that I express, express my uh, words about it, but I mean, there's a lot of people down there doing the same thing, Patty. There, I mean, they're sweltering. They're, they don't want to do it themselves, freak. Yeah, so it's sweltering and struggling, I would imagine. It's. Uh pretty unmanageable for almost everybody when it gets really humid in particular. Now, I'm not trying to spend your money, but there are certain really small, portable, quasi-air conditioning units that you can get for a pretty low price, relatively speaking. Also, a suggestion that I've heard that I think is helpful is, especially when dealing with the humidity, even a uh, dehumidifier along with a fan can cool off the room more than maybe the fan just pushing the hot air around. I'll just put that out there for anyone else who might be struggling with similar issues. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And she uh, uh, she can't talk and she can't walk. Oh, my. She can't use the bathroom. She can't do nothing. How long has she so, been in the home? Uh, it's gone on five years now. Yeah. Is she, you know, on top of the, uh, the heat issues, uh, are you pleased with the level of care she's getting? Well, I guess that's all you're going to get anyway. I mean, you're not going to get no better. I mean, I see, I know the people down there, I guess they haven't got that many, probably four or five armen. Most of them is up around the desk that they don't bother with going down. They might, if anybody's not there, they might go down and feed them. And my wife can't even eat on her own. Well, I hope that every resident of every long-term care facility is getting the best type of treatment and help and support that they possibly can get as opposed to sometimes we hear stories where the lack of supports, and we can't blame it always on staffing issues. We just have to make sure that people are putting their best foot forward every shift. It's just too important. Uh, I'm sad to hear that the residents, including your wife, are sweltering in this relentless heat and humidity these days. Uh, would you like to tell us anything else this morning, caller, while we have you? No, that's it, Patty, but I'm just, you know, concerned about her down there. And I'm sure you are. So am I. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Patty, thank you. Take good care of yourself. Okay, you Okay, too. take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And we knew it was going to be the, the case, right? Not every congregant living facility has the type of air conditioning for these types of extended runs of heat so if there's a part that they're waiting over a year for I mean, maybe an update as to exactly what that part is and maybe some others out there with a little bit more horsepower possibly can get that part i don't know let's go uh line number three taking more to simon from the royal canadian legion branch 50 out in cbs good morning simon you're on the air good morning patty how are you best kind how about you Good. Uh, always, always good to uh, connect with you on different events. I uh, just wanted to make the general public aware of an event that is happening here at Branch 50 at 60 uh, Legion Road at CBS. Uh, we're hosting the Portraits of Honor. 
many listeners would uh, remember my interview with Jerry Lynn Mackey on Monday talking about the Portrait of Honour. Uh, the Portrait of Honour is a mural that, that depicts 158 soldiers that were lost to Afghanistan. And uh, we're hosting that here at the Legion from 9 until 2. It's terrific. And, of course, this is a national charity. So how does it come to pass that you were able to bring it to your branch? Uh, a friend of mine that I served with, Sergeant, uh, retired Sergeant Mike Rood, uh, is the, the holder of the Traveling Portraits of Honour. And Mike was coming back to the province for another event. And... I happened to know that he was coming back, so I lined it up to have him come and bring the Portrait of Honor to Branch 50. Uh, excellent. I've actually, I've never seen it up close and personal, but I have seen pictures. What do you know about Dave Sofa? Dave, I, I don't know a lot about Dave Sofa. I know that Dave Sofa is the original artist that uh, penned the Portraits of Honor, which uh, is originally housed in Petawawa, and then recreated it for this mobile display that uh, Sergeant Groot brings with him across the country to different events. I think it's great folks in your area or anyone who's close by would like to travel and see the Portraits of Honor. So uh, the where and when, once more? Uh, it starts at 9 a.m. this morning and it goes till 2 p.m. this afternoon and it's located at Branch 50 in Kitsuptown Bay South at 50 or 60 Legion Road. Uh, good luck with it and congratulations for being able to bring it to your branch. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks Simon. for talking. My pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Simon from the Royal Canadian Legion, Branch 50 in CBS. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jennifer, you're next. She wants to respond to Minister Jerry Byrne about the housing issues. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Jennifer, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not too bad. Um, I'm currently going to be speaking about the, the housing issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, before Jerry Burns has um, brought more people into Newfoundland and wherever else he's brought them to, there should have been more planning of places for these people to live. And he also has to think of the people who live here. Since since the Ukrainians and I have nothing against the Afghanians, whatever came in here, we had a problem with housing. Now we have more than a problem with housing because now the people are raising their rents and now us low-income people cannot afford them. So now we're in trouble and everybody else is in trouble. Yeah, they're all similar issues when we talk about a vacancy rate, uh, vacancy rate and affordability mm-hmm. and population growth because we also have to factor in it wasn't just the housing crunch that we had prior to setting up shop in Poland. Mm-hmm. More and more people from around the province are moving to more urban settings. Exactly. So they have to have more preparation for these people to be coming in here and now we're in a mess. They're without houses. We're without. We're all going to be living in parks soon enough because the people who own the homes, um, they currently can't afford them now. Well, I suppose there's everyone has a unique or different circumstance. So are you a renter? Right. Yes, I am. And so has you, your rent has gone up recently? 
Oh, yes. Yep. From what yeah, to what? It's going up from 850 to 1000 I'm a low-income worker, and 1000 would either I'll do without electricity, or I do it out food, or I do it out my heart medication. Which which do I choose? Right. So I'm in a bind here. That's an extra hundred and fifty dollars that's not in my pocket, in somebody else's pocket, and I'm still staying at the same place. Uh, I don't I don't get it. They're given the government's given them an opportunity to raise their rent in their houses what they like. There should not, they should not be allowed to do that. I know it's their private homes, but they have to think of the people. Like, we're not making over, over, like, 14 feet is just a minimum. So, you know. I get the affordability issue, and I hear these stories all the time, but there's also, for the other side of it, for a landlord, if you have a investment property with a mortgage on it, now all of a sudden, given what's happened with the Bank of Canada, my mortgage has gone up too. So there's no doubt yeah. they're going to pass along any increased payments based on my interest rates to renters. Yeah. Now, I've tried to start the conversation and uh, talk about rent control and vacancy control, yeah. how it mm-hmm. works, how, whether or not it, it works as it's intended. It's a big conversation, mm-hmm. but we're happy to have it. Yes, yes, and for sure. And for these people who turn down housing, if I can get into housing, I wouldn't turn down housing. Definitely, because you're on the bottom of the list when you turn down housing. That's with a regular person, not from another country. You're at the bottom of the list. And another question, um, Jerry said that they're building houses for... for um, I don't know, you, uh, um, um, Ukrainians, right? No. What about our own people? No, no, they're not. They're not building homes specifically for anybody. So there's okay. been two recent announcements, uh, one of 750 affordable units, another of 850 affordable units just being built, not built for anyone in particular. Okay, because I thought I heard him say that today. No, he's talked, the numbers he was using, and again, I'm not speaking for uh, Minister Byrne, just using some of the numbers that he used. If there's 3,000 Ukrainians, 2,200 of them are now living in market housing. He said there's zero in social housing, which is encouraging. 600 of the 2,200 actually found the place on their own with no help from, no assistance from the ANC, the provincial government, or anywhere else. So I thought it was Mm -hmm. an interesting number that zero Ukrainians in particular are living in social housing. None. Now, they're, there they're are still some... They're living in social housing. They're, oh. Pardon me? Okay. I said they're living in social uh, uh, people's homes. Okay. But the people that live in the apartment that I live in, they're paying an outrageous uh, amount of dollars. And I tell you, if the government is paying that much a month for them to live there, well, they can go ahead and pay for my rent, too. Because it's two thousand dollars to live up, live in the same house I'm living in. That's an upstairs apartment. Two thousand dollars. So, if they're paying that for them, man, they can pay that hundred and fifty dollars or whatever for me. Yeah, I don't think that's how that's working. There are government. The government is paying a bill for anyone staying in a hotel. That's for sure. Right. But if they're not staying yeah. in social housing, then that's not a, a bill that the government is paying for anybody, whether it be from Syria or Afghanistan or Ukraine that's or I mean. wherever else. Uh, Jennifer, I appreciate the time and understand your concern. Would you like to say anything else? 
No, I'm just saying I um, hope this has no effect on uh, Trudeau's uh, folks because he's not getting any from, from from where I am anyways. Well, uh, fair enough. You vote for whoever you like, but all the issues that we just discussed are straight up yeah. the provincial issues. Yes. Okay, then. Thank you. Thanks for the time, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, having that conversation about rent control, look, there's a lot to it. It's not just as fundamental as, well, here's, here's how, what we should do, and that's the end. It doesn't build any more homes. It doesn't add any more units. And there's a difference between uh, rent control and vacancy control. And look, if you have an investment property as a landlord, there's no question your operating costs, your input costs have gone up across the board for whatever that you deal with, whatever bills you pay. Your mortgage just went up. It went up a lot. It doesn't matter if you're a landlord or simply your own private uh, property, your own private residence. Sitting on a variable mortgage has seen a whopping big increase in the last 10 consecutive rate increases from the Bank of Canada. And hopefully they can, you know, knock it off with that because it seems like inflation is coming back under control without all of those levers needed to be pulled repeatedly. Anyway, you want to take that on? Let's go. Let's go to line of break. Good morning, Eric. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. How about you? Not too bad. Hey, I'm calling in this morning. I uh, chatted with you a couple of years back, back in 2021. Uh, not sure if you can remember, we had a major algae boom here in Salmon Cove. And all the fish dying. Yeah, I remember that. Right. Yeah. Right. So we're experiencing the exact same thing again right now. So when that happened a couple of years ago, what investigation took place? What do we know about the cause? What do we know about what sort of mitigation measures can be implemented? Or do we know any more than we did just by eyeballing the issue? Well, uh, initially when it happened, um, employees from the government came out, took their samples. Uh, We were ensured that they would continue monitoring, continue testing, and they would determine what the root cause was, etc., um, in 2021, they did do some testing. Last year, seemed like fell back a little again. And this year, seems like they picked up again with testing. Um, but again, no root cause from the government yet. Now, the town of Sam Cove have uh, done third-party testing, which they paid for themselves at Avalon Laboratories, and. The root cause was in black and white on that testing, but it seems like nobody really wants to accept any responsibility where that's coming from. Dave just uh, spoke to me in my headset saying that the town just did testing last week and we don't think results are back in hand, but that still doesn't speak to whatever investigation was done in 2021. Yeah, that's right. So just describe, for folks who maybe did not hear that call or cannot remember or recall the discussion that we had two years ago, exactly what are you seeing? So in 2021, uh, in the Pond River system here in Samico, water went from clear, like every other body of water in the province, to what I'll describe as green, blue, like the color of the soft drink Mountain Dew. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, After the water turned green is when all the species of fish or salmon died washed up on the beach. From then on is when government moved in, did some testing, made some claims as to what they think may have happened or didn't happen. Um, 
you know, this has been going on for years here in this community. Um, it just seems like they can never figure out or they, they'll never identify what the issue is. If it's natural and organic and it's simply based on whatever the makeup of that body of water is uh, co- combined with the heat, so something may be unmanageable, but it'd be nice to have a formal uh, outcome of water testing and what it shows and what can be done because just repeated algae blooms and fish dying off annually, if it can be avoided, it should be, but I, I don't know enough about it to say that the people are doing the right thing or the wrong thing here. Right. So, um, as you know, too, there is a wastewater treatment plant, uh, which the effluent flows straight into that river system. Um, directly above this wastewater treatment plant, water is clear, fish are alive. Below this wastewater treatment plant, everything is green, fish are dead. Patty, I'm not a scientist, but if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, you know what I'm saying. Fair enough. Yeah, and you're out there looking at it and have seen the developments and understand uh, possibly or obviously much more than I do. Uh, we'll follow up with the town based on your observations and whether it be the uh, positioning of the wa- wastewater treatment facility and what might be a direct line or not with this algae bloom and fish die-off. Uh, anything else this morning, Eric, before I take a break? Uh, there will be a public meeting tonight uh, in the town of Samco that anybody is welcome to come to. Uh, ask questions to council members all in an orderly fashion, of course. Sounds good. I appreciate the time, Eric. Thanks for the call. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Just a quick check-in uh, over in New Zealand. Are they in New Zealand today? Canada, Ireland? Anyways, 1-1 at the half. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jen Dion. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How about you? Uh, I'm very well. Um, We've had a, 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 I am Roderick Dion's daughter, mm-hmm. who's a World War II veteran who passed. And uh, we've been, uh, on behalf of the family, I wanted to call in and thank um, your listeners and many people who have reached out with their condolences um, and to let them know about today. Um, we have Dad's funeral and interment with military honours. And it's going to be a beautiful ceremony at the Basilica. So that is starting at 2 o'clock, and all are welcome. Uh, the ceremony has some beautiful music planned from people like, uh, well, of course, the Basilica team, the beautiful organist and cantor Jacinthe Macca-Graham and organist John Fitzgerald. Um, as well, the Royal Newfoundland Regiment is um, uh, has provided uh, Jim Prowse, to do trumpet and bugle, Dominic Green on violin, Katrina Bromley's going to sing a solo, and the singing legionnaires are even going to be there uh, helping with the hymns. So really beautiful ceremony. Um, Lieutenant Governor is attending. Uh, We want to thank her uh, and her team for honoring my father in this way. Also, the honorary pallbearers, MP Joanne Thompson, um, ministers Sarah Studley and Minister John Abbott, um, Mr. Jody Wall uh, and Jim Din, MHAs, uh, and also we'll have a very special honorary 
pallbearer uh, will be Arthur White, um, who is one of our very, very last uh, remaining World War II veterans. He and his family uh, will be attending the Mass uh, in Dad's honor as well. So it's a beautiful um, service. And, uh, you know, Patty, when Dad was canvassing poppies <laughs> every year, uh, the media were kind enough to always come and speak to him. And last year, he leaned over to my dad and he said, you know, I'm just a gimmick. <laughs> and <laughs> and that, that, Dad was really aware. Like, he, what he meant was he knows that as an individual man, no one is particularly, you know, special. Uh, as much as we may have thought he was. Uh, but he knew that because he had lived so long, he had become uh, a really important symbol for people about remembrance and the contribution of all those who participated in World War II. Um, so important to uh, the society, the democracy, the freedoms we enjoy today. Um, and he was really proud to play that role. Um, and he knew. So today is dad's last gimmick um so he's gonna um when we go to the graveside dad actually outlived the first field of honor um it's it's full so there's a brand new field of honor up across from costco and uh in the memorial gardens and we're going to be going up there to inter my father as the fourth person to be buried in that field of honor and uh, there will be a interment with military honors, which includes a firing party from the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. So please, if you hear gunshots, it's nothing wrong at Costco. It's just Dad's uh, funeral. So, um, yeah. So I just wanted to let everybody know what was happening today in case anybody wanted to uh, join us. Well, first off, my condolences. I had a chance to meet your dad. It's interesting that he references himself as a gimmick, and I know that's a bit of tongue-in-cheek and a, you know, a bit of self-deprecation, but his presence was important, I would suggest. And just you know, inside the last three months, I can't remember exactly how many days since his beloved Francis and you know, has also passed, so it's, you know, regardless of age, it's never easy for the family. It's just not. He may have been 102, and that's a life well-lived and fascinating tales. So uh, beyond the gimmick, did he like telling the stories? Because I have veterans in my world. They don't want to talk about it. You know, very seldom will they ever don their uniform or medals because of the obvious reasons. So did your dad like talking about it, or did he feel pressure to talk about it? How would you characterize it? Well, it's very different experience from, for instance, my brother's upbringing in the 50s to mine in the 70s. Dad never talked about the war when my brother was growing up. And it was only in the late 50s that he joined with his comrades to found and build with their hands a uh, branch of the Canadian Legion in Toronto. My brother and I have surmised that by the time I came along, perhaps Dad had found the healing or the camaraderie that um, the, uh, that is so essential to veterans after having gone through war. So yes, by the time he was in Newfoundland, he was very used to talking about it. And more, it seemed like the older he got, the more detailed the memories would become. We watched the movie Greyhound with him several times. Uh, Tom Hanks's uh, 
on Apple Plus, which is about a convoy duty and the role of the destroyer in getting the convoy across the Atlantic safely under U-boats. And Dad just flooded with details. It just brought back so much for him. Um, We learned more and more about the war every year he grew older. Remarkable. Yeah. And he never... He never glorified it, though. He never glorified it. He was at Remembrance Day in Outer Cove a couple of years ago at the school with another veteran who just last night told me, or sorry, a, a member of the Legion, that is, who told me that he said to Dad, he goes, do you think any of these kids will ever have to go to war? And my dad said, I certainly hope not, because war is a terrible thing. War is hell. Uh, you're, I remember the fact that your father was part of the Canadian delegation, went to France for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and I'm not sure what to say or how to brand or label this, but to know that he passed at 11-11 is also really something else. What a legend. I, uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I, um, you know, we were watching him. I was there with him, and uh, I was watching... You know, the breaths, they stop for, you know, longer and longer. And when he took his last breath and I had gotten to 30 seconds, I looked at my watch and I said, Dad, are you kidding me? You struggle with um, science versus faith. You know, when somebody's passing, you're like, well, is that just a muscle spasm or are they reaching out to hold my hand but when something like that happens you really feel that okay there is a greater power uh again on behalf of myself and dave uh everyone here our condolences uh get through today as best you can and remember a life a very rich life, a life well lived, whether it be as a, in the construction business, as a veteran, as a woodworker or a carver, and as a father. I appreciate the time, Jen, and uh, I'm not sure how to say about today, but I guess get through it is probably the only phrase that comes to mind at this moment. And thank you for making time for us this morning. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Um, and you know, again, 102, look, that's a good long life, but it's never easy. You know, when our, my dad passed in his mid 80s, it was like, why, mid 80s, a good long run? 100% is, but didn't make it any less sad. Uh, what do you want me to do here, Dave? I'm sort of uh, a little bit mind boggled here now. Okay, so we're going to get to the break before sooner than later so that we don't give anyone the short shrift on the other end so anyway you heard some of the details associated with mr dion's final goodbye here today if anyone is in the area and i think you know it wasn't funny but it's a good heads up that if you're in and around costco this afternoon and there will be gunshots and there's nothing to be afraid of it's part of the internment ceremony okay we are on the twitter box we are vocm open line you know what to do you can follow us there email address is open line at vocm.com some people when we talk about housing issues talking about some uh innovative solutions some of it makes a bit of sense right you know and I've never known exactly how to think about this particular concept, but people talk about using shipping containers and stuff. It kind of feels like 
the least we can do. I know they do it in some parts of the country, and they can be transformed to livable units, but add to it, there's actually such a thing as a shipping container shortage in the whole world. So I get some of those concepts. But uh, anyway, if you want to pick up where the housing ca- housing conversation left off, you can do exactly that. When we come back from this break, we're going to get a have a conversation with Jim Din, he's leader of the NDP, the member for St. John Centre, based on his comments regarding newcomers and what he calls eviction notices, some comments made by Minister Jerry Burns surrounding Mr. Din's comments, then Mark, he's a landlord. He wants to talk about housing, then more housing conversation when we talk rent control. And of course, as you know, any topic under the sun works for me right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the leader of the NDP and the member for St. John Center. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for having me on. No problem. And listen, I just want to pass on uh, my condolences to uh, the family of Rod Dion. Uh, I knew him, and I know Jen, and I'm, uh, she asked me to be an honorary pallbearer. So it's uh, certainly, uh, I was... Uh, deepest condolences to the family I he was a true gentleman in, in, uh, in my dealings with himself I wanted to say that before I, I say anything else sounds good um, I just want to call in I, I call in with regards to the issue facing um, the Ukrainians who receive these notices and by the way the term eviction is the is the term that the volunteers I had a number of several volunteers reach out to me who were working who've been working with Ukrainians almost since they first arrived and they were in a panic and they were upset I spoke to several Ukrainian newcomers who again when I went on um, about this, and they were distraught. Some of them had a minimum wage job. There is no, uh, they, they, there is no affordable housing. I know from the, the people who were uh, the, uh, the volunteers who are working with them, they say we've been looking. We cannot find anything that they can afford uh, to live in. There's nothing there in, in that way. So, I think here we've got, and some of these newcomers have been in the hotel room for seven months. Uh, they're not looking to stay there. They uh, uh, single moms uh, with children. They're, they are looking. They want. They want to move on with their lives, but there's nothing there unless they have to move. Uh, well, uh, even moving outside the uh, city area is problematic if they can't afford a car to drive back and forth. So, I guess that's that's the not uh, that that the the where this came from. I did reach out to the minister on Monday as soon as these people uh, contact me. I never did hear back from I sent an email. I gave, I gave the minister my, my cell number where he could call me at any time. <clears throat> that never happened. But I will say this. My issue is not with the Association for New Canadians. It's the issue. They, they, they do not generate the funding for housing. This is a provincial responsibility. And to and to say such, it, I think is is deflecting from the issue. The fact is, I guess, Patty, you've heard me speak on housing issues over the years, and we've had some pretty uh, decent conversations on it. Uh, we differ on some points, but uh, I, we've always had a, I think, it was a productive and a reasonable discussion on the issue. But I will say this: that back in 2022, when the help desk was set up. The government, the minister, uh, and the government knew at that time that there was a housing crisis brewing uh, when the help desk was set up when we were welcoming Ukrainians here, and there was nothing done, uh, nothing really done to address that crisis, that brewing crisis. Um, it's interesting that you pointed out, I, I listening to your uh, your preamble this morning, you talked about the lack of or the gov- number of government vehicles that are 
in need of replacement. And the one thing you said that struck with stuck with me was the fact that there didn't seem to be a plan to replace them. Well, I would argue here in so many things that there was no plan to address the underlying issues. The minister has said, well, what would be the alternative is to basically um, leave these people were there. No, that's not the alternative. And, and again, that's deflecting from the issue. The alternative here is what I've been asking for. Well, first of all, rescind these notices. If Recognizing that there is either insufficient affordable housing out there and that people are, are, are finding it difficult, it's no point saying, hey, you, you've been extended two, two more weeks or your, or your extension has not been approved if there's just no way, nowhere to find uh, the housing that they need. And that's not a gentle nudge. You know, that, that's to me, that, that sent people, the, the Ukrainians I spoke to, newcomers I spoke to, and their, and their volunteers who've been working with them into a panic. They're upset, angry, you name it. We send notes. Get moving on the supply of housing. Interesting. You also mentioned then about the uh, like uh, uh, the contain- freight containers. Well, we have modular homes that uh, I think in certain the, the, you know we can bring in that uh, that might be a simple solution to this at the beginning, or <clears throat> improve trans- transportation so that people maybe maybe there is housing out uh, out uh, in, in in the outlying areas, but I doubt it. I was speaking to one Ukrainian uh, newcomer yesterday. He's uh, paying up uh, almost $2,000, $1,800 in rent. Um, he's a sole income provider. He's not making great money, so just about everything goes to that rent and maybe uh, enough for food, but that's about it. Yeah, I, so, I think we need to dovetail newcomer housing with housing. Period. Bingo. Because Bingo. there's no Period. such thing as housing for one or housing for another. It's just not how housing works because the bank doesn't care who lives in it. They don't care who writes the check for the rent or the mortgage. We don't have a tailor purpose build homes for someone from Afghanistan, someone from Syria, someone from Burgio, or someone from Bishop's Falls. It's a house. It's a, it's a roof yeah. over your head. So sometimes I think we kind of sidetrack conversations to try to make it very niche when, in fact, even if we had no war in Ukraine, we still have a house issue, right? Even if we don't have developers wanting to build purpose-built affordable housing, we have a housing issue. So to get from 100,000 feet above sea level is probably in some cases really unhelpful, but in this case, probably the best way. This issue with, is just the recent is just another facet of the housing issue. Look, since 2022, we've seen the number of people who are experiencing chronic homelessness shoot up. It's gone. I, I think uh, 99 to 167. The account was for one month there, earlier this year, and the number of people who are using shelters has gone from something like I think it was 174, 154 to 326. The fact is, we have an issue here uh, that, that that needs to be dealt with. And I and 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 to your point. That's the planning that needs to take place. We've called, for example, uh, for both the provincial and federal government to unlock the uh, the money for the national housing strategy that's backloaded to uh, no, uh, to start implementing that now. Get started on this issue. But in the meantime, I think you know, uh, with, with regards to this, uh, like you could ease the pressure on a lot of families who are who are struggling in, in Ukraine. It, it just rescind these notices. Let's get working on on the uh, on, on dealing with the housing issue. And you're you're spot on. I will I, I agree with you hundred percent. It's not about it's about housing in general. We know in this metro area and I would say not only the metro area but in, in the community of people I've spoken to in Bonavista, uh, 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 Gander, Cornerbrook, it's a housing shortage uh, and we've got to deal with that. 
and uh, and you know it's it's no use to leave uh, putting people into this crisis whether they were by the way patty whether they were born here whether they've been here people have been here for the last 10 or 20 years or they're just arriving here people are entitled and need housing that they uh, affordable that that's safe and secure and that's the problem that's got to be addressed and that's the problem i'm hoping that minister Byrne and and the, and the provincial government will will finally realize that we've got to get on to that so that we you know what i'm hoping if anything else in a year's time maybe i won't be calling in to you about housing because the problem is on its way to being solved that's something that i want and uh and and, and that, that's the issue we need to be addressing appreciate the time jim Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Jim Din, the NDP leader, member for St. John's Centre. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing today, sir? Best kind. How about you? So, man, I'm a first-time caller, so... Uh, Welcome. Pardon me, but I, uh, I'm, hopefully I come across okay here. You go right yeah. ahead. So, Patty, I've had this discussion, actually, with Mr. Din as well. Uh, I've known Mr. Din a long time. I'm a very small-scale property investor. i got a few apartments around town. Um, about 18 months ago... I uh, bought my first place in the downtown area uh, during that time. It was my first exposure to, uh, you know, having any low-income housing tenants in a property. And, um, you know, they're great tenants. I have no issues, um, you know, no issues with the property at all. Um, the problem being, and I know landlords get a, get a tough time, I mean, but... You know, that property today, and, and I, I bought a kind, kind of knowing that and that I was going to upgrade it and, and, and put some money into it. I, I, I put $30,000 into that place this summer in regards to the outside and new roofs and all that kind of stuff. Um, it pays for the mortgage today, but it doesn't pay for the property tax. It doesn't pay for the increased maintenance costs. It doesn't pay for it. And, and I bought that, you know, that, that wasn't unforeseen. Um, but my challenge now is that I have these great tenants for great people. Um, I certainly don't want to have to put them out. Uh, I've had this conversation, like I said, with Mr. Dean and and, and the organization. Uh, they were in the, there was four out of the five apartments rented when I bought the place. I rented one at uh, you know close to market price. I haven't changed any of the other tenants. I've talked to the organization who uh, you know when you know when I bought the property, they were there. So I, I was transferred over to the organization that had placed the tenants in there. Uh, they're handcuffed a little bit. And, and again, they're handcuffed a lot. And, uh, and the reality is, is and like, like I said to those guys, man, I'll show you the numbers. But the reality is, uh, since he even bought the place, the mortgage on that has gone up $996 a month. Uh, a guy who used to do maintenance that used to cost 16 to $18 is 22 to $23 now. Never mind. Uh, so, I mean, and, and I'm a guy who, like, I mean, I don't have bad property. So, it's, uh, so again, I, I know there's no solution in calling in. But, uh, and, and, you know, so it's one of them cases. You're, you're really handcuffed in. In uh, I've reached out to the organization to kind of see what can we do to keep them there. What can we, you know, without having to make any major changes. I've talked to Mr. Dean. There's, but the reality is today the, you know, I'm I'm, I'm paying for the taxes on the property out of my own account. I mean, the property's not supporting itself. Which and and I'm willing to put the money back into the property. It's just that it's. Uh, you know, it's a handcuff case, which again, I'm very new to the exposure of you know low income or or, or playing that, you know, in around anywhere. Like so, it's you know, it's really a challenging place to be, and it's it's challenging for the tenants. I certainly, you know, I certainly don't want to evict anybody, and uh, you know, I'm you know have a high moral code, and uh, and and like I said to Mr. Din, if if uh, if uh, 
you know, my, my parents knew that they evict someone because of because of low income, they'd come down and strike me with a piece of lightning. You know what I mean? So it's a uh, it's a challenging place to be. And uh, and again, uh, you know, where to turn on 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 that? It's a you know, it, it's a challenge. I can tell you. Nobody buys a, a property as an investment vehicle to not have it support itself. I mean, people just don't do that, right? So, you know, with input costs, and I think I said as much earlier, I don't even know who I was talking with at the, at the time, but if I have a property and my maintenance guy and my grass cutting contract and the snow clearing and uh, repair a fence or to put in a mini split or uh, fix a broken door or replace a refrigerator, everything costs more. And add to it, now my mortgage has gone up exponentially over the course of 10 consecutive rate hikes from the Bank of Canada, which makes it more complicated than simply if you build a table call. It's Nothing is that simple in this world. So when you have investments that are you know, supposed to offer some sort of ROI, then you have people who need affordable rent and you know deal with the vacancy rate it's not one side, it's not picking winners or losers it's not one side wins and the other has to lose if, if we if we take that approach then both sides will lose they just will because the math won't add up so it doesn't make anyone a bad person to make some money on an investment property. Why would it? It, it? That's why they're out there. That's why people entertain it. Now, there's going to be a threshold which presents a dangerous situation, not for individuals like you, but when hedge funds come calling and foreign investment and those things which further intensify an already complicated market. But your situation is very common amongst the landlord world. So anyway, I get where you're coming from, but that's and, how and we, say- Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I tell you, Patty, those hedge funds are so. You know, um, we saw a huge influx in the, in the Atlantic Canada in uh, in large in large uh, scale purchasers and uh, into New Brunswick and Nova Scotia last year. And those guys are moving here now. So I mean, it, and they're already here. But it's but it's uh, so again, it's a. Uh, you know, the, the issue is very complicated, and it's going to get worse when you have bigger players. Not worse, but it's going to get more complicated when you have bigger players that are, you know, are, you know, really don't have a connection and, and really kind of trying to just push the profit side. So it's, you know, it's it's a challenging issue. Uh, you know, my point in Colin again because it's one of these it's one of these cases where, you know, the options are, are, are tough, and it's uh, it's a challenging issue, and uh, you know, tough decisions got to be made on it, and and hopefully we can see a turn on. Uh, you know, that's something that works for, you know, most people. I appreciate making time, Mark. Thanks a lot. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, it is time for the newscast, but Dylan's also there. We're going to pick up uh, on issues associated with rent, and I've brought forward a a bunch of different angles at the concept of rent control, how it works, where it might have some pitfalls, but Dylan wants to talk about rent control. Then we're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Dylan, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Uh, doing okay. How about you? Oh, you know, sun is shining here in Goose Bay. Pretty good day all, all in all. Love so. to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to call in, uh, kind of talk about rent control a little bit. And I also kind of wanted to talk about just like the housing market as a whole and using uh, property as an investment. Um, So I know recently uh, the Bank of Canada has been raising interest rates and landlords have been passing those rates down onto their uh, tenants. Um, So I think I think 
we have a big problem in this country. And the, the problem is using real estate, which is, you know, housing, people's roofs over their heads, using it as a vehicle to make money, as a, as a, as a profit-driven market. So I just think that, uh, you know, maybe we should step away from that because, you know, for I know you had a guy on there, uh, your last caller, who was uh, a small-time landlord. And uh, I just think that, you know, for these people, you know, interest rate increases, property uh, maintenance fees increases, property taxes, you know, it eats into their profit margins. But when they pass these, Cost down onto their uh, tenants, you know, this eats into their lives. You had a, a woman on earlier who said uh, they increased her rent by $150, which means that would be her choosing between paying for groceries, paying for power, or paying for her um, uh, heart medication. So I think it's just we really need to get away from that as a, as a country, you know, using housing as a way to make money. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people benefited from the low, lower interest rates that, uh, you know, allow people to get in the housing market. But I think, like, if you're an investor, you know, you're an adult and you can make your own decisions and you can see the risks that are coming. And I don't think anybody should have really thought that interest rates were going to stay at 0.25%. I don't think it helps people, to be honest, Dylan. Household debt increased by wide margins when the money was cheap or if not free. And to your concept, look, I know exactly the point you're making, but when you think about it out loud, like the value of land, the reason why it increased the value because they're not making any more of it, right? Land is a finite issue. When it comes to housing, it's inherently profit-driven, regardless if we're talking about a hedge fund or me owning one or two properties in the city, because right. if you just boil it down to the very basics of how people get into a home, it is 100% profit-driven because there's 6 million mortgages in the country held by either banks or non-traditional mortgage lenders, and they're making money off it. So if we just stop the, we turn off the tap at that point, then we're just further fueling the, the entities, the organizations, and the businesses that are hugely profitable. So it's hard right. to split that here where housing is not a profit-driven issue because it is. At its very basics, right. it is. I, I think that when I speak about it being profit-driven, you know, it's one thing to, you know, have a mom-and-pop landlord that rent out their basement to somebody, but I have a hard time just personally feeling bad for somebody who has four, five, six, seven, eight rental properties that they, you know, finance through taking out HELOCs on other properties. And now they're in a pinch because interest rates are going up, things are costing more, and they don't want to take a loss. And I understand you don't want to take a loss on your investment, you know, but to pass that down onto somebody or some people so vulnerable just morally doesn't sit right with me. And you know what, like, at the end of the day, it's, it's an investment. So you have to know when you made a bad investment, and, you know, like, nobody feels bad for me if I lost my shirt on Nortel stock, right? So I just think, for, for me personally, I just think there are a lot of things you can do to solve the housing problem. You know, a lot of people talk about building more stock, um, you know, fixing zoning laws, what, what, whatever, you, whatever you have. But I, I, I just think, like, it seems to me that a lot of rental markets are almost predatory in a way. You know, I just, I just think, like, you, you need to take try and take as much of the profit out of it, whether that means taxing people on capital gains on more than one or two properties. But I think there are solutions. 
uh, for the wider housing market. But when it comes to rental control, I think it, it's important because it protects those people who are vulnerable, like some of the callers that you have today, basically saying they have to choose between food, medication, or power, or paying their landlord's margins. So that's just where I sit on it. And Yeah, I understand your point. Uh, and Tom chimes in on Twitter and says, real estate is the larger component of Canada's GDP, and it is. And because of that reality, to have a philosophical transformation of real estate will, without question, cause short-term, medium-term wicked pain. Right. Does it not mean but, that I mean, there's but, a... But where does that what does that say about us so canada a country with all the resources and industry that we have that real estate is one of our top gdp contributors you know that that when, when we have you know oil we have minerals we have you know industry we have some of the top universities in the world developing new technologies why is it that housing has to be one of our top GDP contributors. Well, the things that you mentioned also have a global reality attached to them. For instance, you know, how much of those products, even if you just say oil and minerals, how much of that is sent elsewhere and comes back as a finished product that we buy back versus real estate is very much confined to the borders of the country. And now we should because there's been new rules about foreign ownership and stuff, and that's been a long time coming. But uh, as much as I get your point, that sort of transformation, based on the fact that even if we talk about who gets paid to build the home, everywhere from whoever sold me the stick of lumber to the carpenters to the other tradespeople to the banks and all the rest of it, their profit is baked in. So, or the concept of profit, pardon me, is baked in. Not to say we right. can't do different things, and there's more ways to be innovative in housing. Number one, if we're talking about overall cost, regardless of where you live in this country, we're doing too much building out as opposed to building up. You know, it just comes with all kinds of stuff. Extension of water and sewer services, more roads to pave, more roads to plow, more expense to pick up my garbage. I mean, we're just doing things in a bit of a cockamamie way that ultimately is not helping anybody other than those who can afford to live of uh, certain proximity to their their job or the hospital or the mall or the Costco or whatever. So it's a huge issue that certainly commands these types of conversations, and I'm glad you chimed in. Yeah, and, and you know it's nothing more than my opinion, you know, and I and I and I do, I know I know I kind of went at landlords a little bit there, and I'm not I'm not trying to attack anybody personally, but you know it's it's hard when you see people or you know somebody you are somebody who are on the receiving ends of these rental increases, and and in, you know that that lady said it was 150 dollars, which to somebody who has a good income isn't really a lot of money, but look at Ontario, people are having rental increases of five six hundred dollars you know and that's that's really hard to manage for some people and i think i think i don't have all the answers but i think that there is a better way to go about doing this yeah and markets are all different right like in toronto average price of a single family dwelling detached home is over a million dollars like right. the average price of a, a home in this country is over seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. at some right. point the breaking point really manifests itself in very painful situations except for those yeah. who are sitting at the top of the food chain uh dylan right. appreciate the time this morning Great. Thanks, Patty. Have a good one. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller that wants to talk about cooling issues at her mother's long-term care facility. And uh, will, will I take Mary Mary before we get to the break tape? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you? Doing great. Oh, this is Mary Barry. It is me old trout. <laughs> nice to speak with I- you. You too, and uh, excellent uh, conversations this morning. But I'm unfortunately I'm not calling about uh, that important topic. But uh, I'm calling on behalf of a family member who was in Barring Park yesterday and lost a set of keys 
and the keychain has a very colorful Blue Jays decal on it. And there's several uh, keys on the chain, and they were walking, he and his buddy were walking around the main loop down the lower pond way, and the, I think they call it the, the boat pond. And uh, they were there between two and four yesterday afternoon. So I just thought, because everybody and their dog listens to you every, every day, maybe if somebody hears this, they could uh, call your buddy Dave at Switchboard, and he could. Uh, relay the message to me? Sure. Lost Keys, Bowering Park, and the, obviously with the keychain being a big Blue Jays decal, you can yeah. recognize those keys. So if you picked them up, we know who found them. And this is, look, uh, one thing I try to remind the listeners, every call is important. You know why? Because if I lost my keys, I can't get in the house. So that's important enough for whoever lost their keys. And, you know, the Blue Jays lost the game last night, but maybe today the Blue Jays will be found. Let's okay. hope exactly. <laughs> Would you like to offer it en français? <laughs> so good to talk to you, Patty. My pleasure, Mary. Nice, Keep nice up speaking. Keep great work. Thank okay. you. See you around. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Keys lost. Bowering Park. Blue Jays decal. Last night, again, I, I'm bad for this. Woke up to go to the washroom, considered uh, what time it was, flicked on the Jays game. It was bottom of the eighth, so I watched through the, the extra innings. Up four in the ninth, lost in the tenth. Ugh. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Hi, how are you? Doing okay, thanks. You? Good. Um, I'm just calling uh, for, a few, for a couple reasons this morning uh, concerning the uh, health care in the homes, the seniors' homes around the Avalon and other places, of course. Uh, I'm just wondering if the seniors are being checked on because of the heat in the last few days and the last couple of weeks. And I know in my where my mom is too, it's very, very hot. So most of those seniors are lacking ice water and and well, cool air for one thing. There's no there is no um air conditioning in the rooms itself. Uh, the only air conditioning in, in most of the buildings are in the foyer and in the manager's office. So the rest the rest of the building is like a sauna. People sitting outside, waiting, you know, cooling off in the evenings and stuff like that. Um, in my case, uh, my parents were, were my mom and uh, stepdad was asked to keep their uh, blinds down and close the windows to to keep the sun from coming in, keep the heat from coming in, and open their hallway door. Makes no sense to me, but. Well, it's the bare minimum <laughs> that anyone can do to keep the the room or the home as cool as possible. I can only hope they're checking in on seniors. And this is not hyperbolic either. In parts of the country that have experienced extreme heat over the last couple of years, we've seen people die. And that's not just to be, you know, severe or to be sensationalizing things. It's a fact. It's happened. We've actually talked about the difficulty with which seniors have of cooling themselves based on chronic illness and all kinds of things. So it's a very real concern. You can only hope that the people who manage these facilities and the employees on the floor are doing exactly as you subscribe or describe. Because it's one thing to have ice water, but that's a short-term solution. It's one thing to put down the blinds and open the door. That doesn't make it necessarily any cooler to get to sleep tonight. So there's a lot to it. No. Uh, she, um, my mother has four fans in her room that's absolutely doing nothing, only blown, away, blown around hot hair. Yep, that's it. Because 
and that's it. She's 86 years old. She's on dialysis three days a week, sometimes four. Um, hooked up to oxygen and almost with her tongue hanging out there because of the heat in the room. There's got to be a solution to this. I mean, uh, seniors seniors just can't don't want to complain about it. They they don't want to get upset about it. Like, but they're just going other places to cool off. That don't make sense to me. You know, and this is happening not only in this home but in several other homes that's been going on for years. The seniors are being neglected, and there's still nothing done about it. It like it's been going on for the last four years. They were going to do this. They were going to do that. You know what? Every senior deserves a lot more than that. No argument coming from me. You know, there should be, especially in provincially run facilities, of which that's the vast majority of long-term care in this province, there should be no reason why you can be cool as a manager but sweltering as a resident. Absolutely not. I understand completely. Anything else you'd like to say this morning? I'd, I'd just like to say that I've called my MHA and I've called a few more people in the healthcare, but nobody, there's only one person that got back to me yet. And they're trying to, trying to see what the solution can be. Let I me know when you know. Okay. Appreciate the call. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, you too. Okay. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number seven. Say good morning to Becky with the St. John's Women's Centre. Good morning, Becky. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How's it going? Very well. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. Good. I'm calling today from the St. John's Women's Centre. Uh, I wanted to let everybody know that our boutique here at the Women's Centre uh, is in need of some community donations. Uh, we operate on donations alone, and our community shows us so much support throughout the year, which allows us to bridge some really important gaps and meet folks' needs. So, we, you know, we know that summer's busy, lots of people are enjoying all that heat and much-needed time off, but we also know that times right now are really tough for so many people. Um, so maybe you have less to give than you'd like to, um, and that's all okay. But if you're somebody listening that's maybe got a bag of clothing in the back of your closet that you've been meaning to drop off, or, you know, maybe you're a volunteer group uh, that wants to do something for their community, like organize a drive, or even, you know, we think of, like, a drugstore in town that might have some room in their donation budget, now is the time. It is looking pretty sparse in our boutique, in our boutique lately. Um, so our boutique program is available to all women and non-binary people in the St. John's area, anybody. And appointments are available monthly and every single thing in there is free. So it's essentially, it's, it's a shopping trip where people can select any items that they need uh, that they might not be able to purchase or get otherwise. Um, it's especially important, as we know, in these rapidly changing temperatures, <laughs> making sure people have all the layers that they need that are suitable for each season. Uh, you know, so that they can stay safe and comfortable. Um, Boutique has always been a program that's been important for those experiencing homelessness or maybe living on a fixed or low income or, you know, simply people that are looking for an item that's new for them. So it's a really essential program. It's really popular, but we are running low on stuff. What kind of stuff? Anything particular that you need? Absolutely. Specifically, we're really in need of socks, underwear, shampoo, toothpaste, razors, and deodorant, but of course, summer clothes as well. Um, we also want to let people know what we can't, what, like what we're not able to accept, um, just for their information. Uh, we're not able to take things like household items, furniture, children's stuff, whether that's clothing or toys, and we can't take open or used personal care products, um, and we can't do pickups either. So if people do want to drop stuff off, they can drop off bags of donations or of any of the items we're looking for between 8.30 
and 4.30 Monday to Friday right here at the Women's Center. So that's at 170 Cashin Avenue. And we can help people carry stuff in if they want as well. And I'll say this part on your behalf. And this is not a dumping ground for old throwaway stuff. This is gently used stuff that could be reused, repurposed, used by someone else. So make sure that when you go about getting your donation together, you're not, it's not the landfill. It's the Women's Center. That's right. We are here to recycle wonderful things, uh, you know, give them new life for somebody else. Sounds about right to me. So other than that, do you want to tell us about any of the other programs you have going on that you want people to be made aware of? Because it sounds like a bit of a catch-all, the Women's Center. Yeah, we do a little bit of everything. I'm not going to lie. We do have plenty of other programming that happens here at the Women's Center. Uh, You know, we have like one-off events and workshops and stuff like that. We had kitten yoga here last week, which was awesome. Uh, And if anybody wants to know about our specific programs, you know, they can give us a call or come and pick up a calendar. Uh, We also have our drop-in counseling program that happens on Tuesdays and Wednesdays from the hours of 12 till the evening. Um, And that's, you know, drop-in, low barrier. Anybody can come in uh, for counseling because, you know, we know that everybody's got stuff that they might want to talk about. Um, And that's open here today at the Women's Center, too. Um, So that's a couple of things we've got on the go now. Um, Yeah. Sounds good. So give the folks the details about where and what times during Monday to Friday they can drop off some of their gently used stuff. Sure thing. So the Women's Center here is at 170 Cashin Avenue. We do have a parking lot, um, so anybody can come in and park there as well. Um, our, 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 our building is accessible as well, so if people require a ramp, we have that outside. And we're open between 8.30 and 4.30, Monday to Friday. And during those times, we can help you bring things inside. Appreciate the time, Becky. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a good day, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're going to talk about a cath lab. I assume that's out in the nearly uh, finished construction out of the Cornerbrook Hospital. And then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly representing Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And thank you again for taking my call. No problem. Patty, I'm calling again. Um, uh, it was a few months ago that I had to raise the issue, and, and I'm uh, having to raise the issue again of the number of patients that are here in Cormac waiting to go in for the cath lab, the catheterization lab, to get a dye test. Uh, I've been called by numerous people. I know there's at least 11 people there waiting now, some over 20 days. Many are sent home waiting to, to get an appointment. And I know the Premier and I know the Minister was talking about the, the uh, fly-in and fly-out that day. It worked once here in Western, but um, there has been no movement in the last couple of days. Um, I was asked to raise this issue by uh, several um, patients who are in the hospital who has a high anxiety waiting uh, to be sent in, and, and there's no word of when they will be sent in. Uh, they've been waiting for a long while. And uh, and uh, I wrote the minister a few days ago and asked him for an update. I never got a response to that, so I uh, I committed to the residents to raise the issue, and I am, because this is causing a lot of stress on a lot of people in uh, in West Memorial, which not just covers the Bay of Islands. It, it's the whole Cornerbrook Western region. 
and you know other than the hospital in St. Anthony it covers a lot of the northern peninsula as well okay so f- like for me and of course I don't live on the west coast so it's not really for me to say but I was a little surprised that when the demands for what should or should not be included in the Cornerbrook Hospital didn't start with a cath lab yeah. <laughs> because there's only one in the province to have a second one just makes a lot of sense so it's the anxiety for someone in the bed waiting because you probably can't get, dis- get discharged with some of these heart related concerns so on top of their anxiety they're occupying a bed that can be occupied by someone else so uh, you know uh, th- 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 that is so true Penny and, and what you find uh, what you find and this is this is a fact there's two beds for Western Newfoundland in that cath lab unless they bring them in for a day on the fly in fly out that's it so if there's two people gone in that's it there, there has to be some arrangements made when there's an increase and there's a uh, numerous people at Western Newfoundland who's waiting to get in. Like, I'm not raising this issue um, because I just want to harp on the government. I'm getting major concerns from 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 the people in the hospital. I'm getting from their their families, and this is just not the Hummer Bay violence. This is Quarterbrook. This is Pasadena. This is Derlick, the area, and and they ask me, please raise the issue and I'm like I'm calling upon the minister like if you have this plane to fly in to fly out that you take seven or eight people fly in some people may come in go in and come out the same day and and this is what I'm saying to the minister like you, you promoted this this was on your agenda how well this can work but it's not working because it's not being used for some reason and no one can get answers if someone can get an answer you can say understand or say relieve the tension or the stress but no one can get an answer so i'm calling upon the minister again i'm, I'm advising the minister and i wrote him three or four days ago very politely asked him by asked him the reason of concern asked him to look into it that can you please look into it because stress is causing a lot of stress on a lot of residents and the family members for the people that are that are in there I, I totally understand it and it has complications beyond those patients it's the whole system gets backlogged and I remember clearly on this program there was two fellas in beds in the corner brook of the West Memorial for a month a month or more just waiting for a dye test there's something you know odd about that approach period and the whole fly and fly out just extend that to uh, hip and knee replacements yeah. I don't know uh, there's a buddy of mine who lives in St. John's he had his surgery in St. Anthony yeah. you know I, mean, I get it for flying people in and out of places that don't have the opportunity but if you live in St. John's the associated cost of flying them to St. Anthony putting them up in St. Anthony and flying them back isn't necessarily working the way it sounds like it's supposed to work but I just threw that in there for the sake of it and I know, Ben, and there, there's other issues, like for quarter work, like I, the other day in the, in the emergency room in the middle of the day, all the chairs were filled, uh, people stand in the hallways up to eight and ten hours. And and a lot of it, and, and I mentioned this before, like there's the primary care team, there's none for Cornerbrook, absolutely none for Cornerbrook. This new thing that they're going to set up uh, for uh, for the buses, they can drive around, none for Cornerbrook. The nurse practitioners, Petty, and, and just a good example about the emergencies. And I raised this issue, and, and the minister said, no, we want to wait to get to wait until the nurse practitioners get filled in, in our, our regional hospitals. The nurse practitioners now, can do, a lot of them got, got a little business on the go that takes up, up to thousands of patients. A lot of people right now has to pay 50 or $60. 
Tom Osborne net today can let them build MCP. And here, here, here's the impact it has. When a person has to go up and get three, four blood tests, and they got to pay $60, $70, mainly seniors, they can't afford it. But if they can do that, and they can go to these nurse practitioners and set dates now for next month, the following month, no, they don't have to pay. They don't have to go stand and line up in the emergency room in, in Cornerbrook and Western Memorial Regional Hospital, waiting seven or eight, ten hours for someone to write out a prescription for 30 seconds to go get blood work. Did, and the minister always asks for, for, for some uh, solutions. That's a great solution. That's a great solution to take the, the stress off having to pay for, for health care services. And that's a, a great way to reduce the wait times for emergency departments in Western Memorial Regional Hospital. It's a great way. And, and that is a practical solution. And what happens then is some people who may have got a, a blood test and, and because they couldn't get it done, they couldn't wait long enough, they're in the hospital now waiting to go in for a cath lab. This, this is the down effect of, of, of all this, these, these delays. And nurse practitioners are, are, are one great way. But, Patty, uh, I, I promised the people that I would raise the issue. I'm, I'm raising the issue publicly now that there is a major concern at Western Memorial Regional Hospital concerning residents, some over 20 days waiting to get in. And they can't go home because they're saying, no, you're too severe. You can't go home and can't get in to see what's wrong with them. So I call upon the minister today to look into this to see what can be done to help out those people. Appreciate the time, Eddie. Eddie, thank you again for the opportunity to raise the, this very important issue. No problem. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's uh, Eddie Joyce, independent member, Humber Bay of Islands. Let's go to line number four. Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. Uh, just calling on the uh, housing crisis in St. John's of Land here. I just wanted to know that just to uh, the younger calling earlier, just wanted to know just to uh, but the rent going up is uh, I can understand where she's coming from because I mean it's the same situation as she is almost uh, you know it seems to be uh, they come into a pattern but you know, I won't say where obviously but uh, every year the rent seems to be going up and up and up and up and uh, you know uh, and almost like you know like on, on a subsidized unit but the uh, is that owned by New Lanarkshire Housing but I'm going to be waiting for a transfer hopefully they'll get an application for them because I mean I need to be on a housing list regardless but even though I'm subsidized by between the plan of the housing and social services, they're both paying my rent. But uh, it's, uh, it's the both of them are soon maxed out on the money-wise. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do down the road. I mean, I want to get so much money to live off of. And with the cost of living now, like I say, with the food gone up and the lights gone up and this gone up and that gone up, it's, like, I, like I don't have basically too, too much more money to uh, pay out for anything, you know? So like, they all say they can't take blood, but they're up. So some of the wrong situation and I don't know what, what to do after this, but I mean, on I guess they taste straight to something every two weeks. And then, like I said, then I went to up now to $50 starting in February the 1st. And uh, like I said, and after that, now, like I said, I mean, I guess I'm pretty much the ticket out of my check. So uh, in that situation, I don't know what that leads me to. And like I said, by some of them landlords, by, like I said, especially the ramblings. No, no, no defense, but that's something that I really gouging, you know, people, you know, and they know how to do it, you know. Sure, and the issue, well, I guess one of the larger concerns is there's no end in sight. 
that's the problem that I don't think we've wrapped our minds around quite yet. I mean, even the Bank of Canada says we're, they're not done with the interest rate hikes. And everything everybody touches is more and more expensive. And consequently, knowing where this ends or the opportunity for things to come back to earth a little bit more, I don't see it happening, which is not great. I hate to even think it or say it out loud, but that's the fact of the matter, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, and it's sad, like I say, because, I mean, you know, like after all, I mean, like I said, I know everyone's going to like I say, though. That's the sad part of it. You know I mean? Like, you know, like... It's, it's sad, you know, I mean, to do it like that, though, right? I mean, on as much you can live off of, I mean, tell everyone was basically in the one boat, I mean, basically homeless or whatever, you know? It's not very good, Eddie. The way that's the way the world is going, you know, like I said, and then it's hurting her, you know, like, I don't know what, what, where else to turn, you know, the most situation, that young girl situation, the same way. I mean, how much more can a person live off of what you can't have, you know? It's a fair question. I wish I had an answer because I'd be... I'd be on the right track if I had some sort of solution associated with this because it's a wide-ranging problem for millions of Canadians. doesn't matter if you're on social assistance or not. Just the whole pressures that we're feeling to just do the obvious. And again, this really, sometimes we just put it into one political uh, ideology or one political party or otherwise. Housing and food, it doesn't matter who you support or why you support them. We all need housing. We all need food. And That's it's right. not really working the way it should work in a modern country like Canada in 2023. Uh, I appreciate the time, Brian. Would you like to say anything else before I take my final break of the morning? Uh, well, just one more question. This, you know, like, in our situation, I don't know, Penny, like, uh, so who do I speak to on my behalf? Do I want to do like, some kind of bad voice or some kind of... Like, like, is there an NMHA member or something in my area? Or? Well, yeah, you will have a representative uh, in the uh, provincial government. So where, what part of the province are you calling from? I'm in St. John's of Land and the center city there, I guess you call us. In the center of the city? Well, that could be St. John's, uh, St. John's Center, uh, very likely, or could be. That would be Jim Din would be your member. Yep. Okay. So now, when I call him up, now, you know, what would he, you know, I don't know if he's showing up, what would he do for me now? Like, well, it's hard um, for me to say. I can't predetermine what he can or cannot do or what he will be willing or not to do, but I can give you the telephone number for his office. Okay, sure. Sure. It's 729 Seven two nine two six two six three eight three eight. All right, so what I'll do? I'll just call him up, I guess, and explain, tell him my situation, then maybe sure. he'll. Yeah, and you never know. He might be able to point you in the direction for extra uh, additional supports or what have you, but I can't say what Mr. Din will or will not do or can or cannot do, but I would at least try it. He's your member, or could be your member. If he's not, he'll put you on to the right person. Okay, so seven two nine two six three eight. That's it. Two, two, six, okay, thank you, Penny. You're welcome, Brian. Good luck. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, final break of the morning. When we come back, cooling issues in long-term care is also there, and then maybe time for one more call after that. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number eight. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Great today. Thanks. You? Not so bad. Um, I'm calling in regards to the lady who called in a little while ago about the long-term care facilities. Now, I have a relative who's, who's in a facility, which I won't name, that last year I brought up concerns about our heat wave and that there are no fans, there's no way to hydrate a lot of the residents. They were actually handing out Gatorade in two-ounce Dixie cups to seniors who a lot, like my relative, that has severe arthritis, that you can barely pick up the little wax cup. 
That was their solution to keep people hydrated. This year, there's not even Gatorade. They're giving them popsicles. And a lot of the people can't leave their rooms. Now, last year I was told in this particular facility, they're going to put out a tender to put air conditioning in or a new HVAC system, which is absolutely unrealistic. Um, you, You can't go into a long-term care facility and do a major construction like that with people there. You know what I'm speaking about? I'm in the industry. It would be unattainable and extremely expensive and take an awful long time. A simple solution that I suggested a year ago was to get some proper cooling fans, just just your your standard portable ones that can be plugged in, um, and look at some of the portable Uh, air purifiers that you can get because there's also an issue with the quality of the air in these facilities. That would have been a viable solution. And instead of that, what I was told is we're out getting requests for uh, proposals. So we're, we're literally talking a two, three years before anything would happen. And we have a simple solution Uh, in order to keep the temperature down that nobody wants to address. Right now, at present, in the home that my relative is in, what they've done is taken 18-inch fans that are meant to go on the ground or on a tabletop, and they've screwed them to the ceiling or to the wall, seven or eight feet high, that go directly across the hallway as opposed to up and down. And that's the solution. Fair enough. You know, I would add to it that some of it will be, this, you know, shouldn't have to be uh, reliant on the resident and or their family to offer these cooling solutions. It should be the people who are managing and to. owning and running these facilities. I mean, I would add a dehumidifier to that list, to be honest, because some of the cooling fans are helpful, but there's nothing quite like taking the water out of the air. Um, I'll just Absolutely. put that in there. Yeah. I had to do, I put a humidifier in my relative's room and two fans. Walking in there the other day, and I make sure I'm in three or four times a week and reminding my relative to drink lots of water, don't depend on the staff, they're busy, they're short. Walking in there was actually warmer than it was outside when it was 27 or 28. It's literally like a punch in the face when you walk in through the doors. It's hard on the staff. I I mean, a couple of the... the, Uh, rooms that they have for the staff by the nursing stations they have fans in it's hard on them as well too it's not just the residents it's the staff who are working in this and they don't want to do anything try to get a hold of our our seniors advocate you got it you got a better chance of getting a hold of jesus christ than you do getting a hold of of mrs walsh all you get is a voicemail and you may get a call back later that day or the next day, and then you're playing phone tag. And I, I just don't think the public is aware of what goes on in these facilities. And with the head administrator at this one last year, I said, we better not go through the same thing this summer, and we are. And we shouldn't be. 
Uh, and I think no. people are becoming more and more aware. I've been talking about it. We've had calls on it. And so hopefully the people in authority are listening and paying heed. It's one thing to listen, quite another to understand it and try to find solutions. Because you're right, big construction, duct work and what have you can't be done with seniors uh, living in the facility. But some of the smaller, more attainable short-term solutions can be part of it while we try to figure out absolutely. some of the long-terms. Uh, Paul, anything else before I sneak on one more call before just, we run out of time? Quick, okay, quick to put this into some terms. We recently, between our federal government or the provincial government of the city, decided to spend $180,000 to make people more educated downtown uh, as, as to some of the woes at, at late night. Uh, when all it would take is some police officers uh, walking the beat and better lighting, the situation would be pretty much resolved. That $180,000 could easily fix at least three facilities. It's, our, it's where our priorities are and where our will is. And it doesn't appear to, to rest with our seniors that are in the long-term care. With well, that, thank you very much. I appreciate the time, Paul. Okie doke. Take, Take care. care. Thank right. you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Final word this morning goes to line number one. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you, Madame? Doing okay, I suppose. How about you? Oh, frustrated. <laughs> What's happening? I have a. I have my brother home. He's a retired uh, army uh, army vet. Um, he has. Uh, he's down Carbonier Hospital. Uh, he has PTSD uh, from recovery mission of Swiss Air. Uh, he moved home here. He lived with me, Nine Dwyer's Road, Shearstown. Now he got his own house. He hasn't had a chance to turn around and do all the mailing changes and whatnot. He's down there in the hospital. His heart is racing. He's he's on blood thinners. He's trying to get, I don't know the name, the type of uh, medical team this is, but they do the feet. Because if he happens to turn and hook his toe into them steel beds, he'll either bleed to death if no one no one finds him, and he, also he can get a major infection. Then we call the DVA. The DVA said they no longer uh, take care of the medical issues. It is done by um, um, uh, Med- Medivac Blue Cross. And when he did call Veteran Affairs, all the only questions they mind asking was, what about your grounds and maintenance? What about your grounds and maintenance? He said, forget about my grounds and maintenance. He says, I need someone to turn around and look after me. And he's in a bad way. And I don't know what to do for him. And he don't know what to do for himself. And this is a vet. Right. Now they're after right. turn around and four, five cabinet ministers left in the federal government. Like, what's going on with our veterans? Where do I turn? Well, it's a good question. So you're telling me the Department of Veteran Affairs simply said, well, take it up with Blue Cross, Medivy? Yeah, they don't deal with it anymore. They don't deal with them anymore. They turn and they said, you have to call Medivac Blue Cross. Now, he did call Medivac Blue Cross, and he turned around and he, to- he told them, the poor lady, she started to cry. He turned and he said, my darling, he said, you got more compassion in your little finger than the veteran affairs do in Ottawa. And that is saying something. And it's saying all the wrong things. Uh, veterans Affairs has been a bit of a shambles for quite a long time, no doubt about it. Uh, just because they nudge, we nudged right up against 12 o'clock, if I had somewhere to point you, I would be more than happy to do so. 
And if anyone else... Can I call you back tomorrow? I will have more information. Okay. He's more knowledgeable. He's more authentic in putting his words together. He will write down what he wants me to say. Is it okay if I call back tomorrow? Yeah, call, call and speak with David. I'm not here tomorrow personally, but call and speak with David, who you already spoke with today, and you guys okay. can figure it out for sure. Okay, my love. Okay, Kathy. Thank good you luck. very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, good show. Uh, and I won't be here, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Speak to you in the morning. Bye-bye.